This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. series starts. I'm excited about it. Uh, there's something, no matter, you know, there are some years where I pay a lot of attention to baseball. There are some years when I pay no attention to baseball. When I was a child, I was obsessed with baseball. Every pitch, every inning of um, not just my team, but every, every baseball that I could watch, I would devour. I knew every statistics. I could tell you who was leading the league in just about every category. Now, I watch a baseball game and there are statistics that I couldn't even tell you what they mean. They invent these new statistics that I, I just I don't even it's like a, I'm I feel like what uh, somebody's great grandfather probably felt like trying to understand slugging percentage 30 years ago. I don't get it. I, I'm a little lost. But whether I'm paying close attention, depending on what's going on in my life or whether I'm paying not such close attention, depending on what's going on in my life. There's still something about the World Series which brings me right back to being nine years old, which brings me right back in time to a reverence for America's pastime. And I don't think I have any plans on Friday, so my plan is to watch this World Series game in its entirety. Here's what I'm trying to figure out, and I think I have my decision made. But here's what I'm trying to figure out is who to root for, because, look, I'm a Met fan. And part of being a Met fan means being a National League fan. However, the entire season, our rivals are the Phillies. They're in our division. They've always been in the Mets division there. We're so used to rooting against the Phillies all year long. And it's very difficult to kind of flick a switch And start rooting for the Phillies, even in the World Series. Then you have the fact that they're playing the Houston Astros, or as we New Yorkers call them, the Houston Astros. They're playing the Astros, who, yes, they're an American League team, but I still do view them as a National League team because they have largely been a National League team for so many years. It's the same way that I view the uh, Milwaukee Brewers as an American League team. Additionally... Well, and with the Astros, you have the whole history with Yogi Berra. I am the world's biggest Yogi Berra fan, and the fact that he was a coach with the Houston Astros, it always it always causes me to view them fondly in my book. Additionally, now that both leagues, the American League and the National League, have the designated hitter, I feel like the lines between... And now that you have interleague play, which you've had for some time now, the lines between both leagues have sort of been blurred. When I was growing up, it was a very distinct brand of baseball in the National League versus the American League. The National League had more of an emphasis on pinch hitters and hitting and running and sacrifice bunts and moving the runner over and hitting behind the runner. The American League had much more of an emphasis on... 
um, the long ball, you know, and uh, hitting home runs and that kind of a thing. Those distinctions, I don't want to say they don't exist anymore, but they've been substantially diminished. So what I'm trying to figure out is whether this loyalty to my league still makes sense, even if that means rooting for the Philadelphia Phillies. And the the other thing that makes me scratch my head, I don't know if this is superstition or a genuine economic precursor. I've talked about this before. They say the greatest indication of an economic downturn is a Philadelphia baseball team winning the World Series. So by rooting for the Phillies, am I also rooting for the country's economy to be tanked? So that's sort of what I'm wrestling with. And I'm curious what you're ending up doing. 800-848-9222, particularly on the issue of league loyalty. I think the person who explained the concept of league loyalty best was the former mayor of New York City and my colleague on the radio, Rudy Giuliani, who, when he was running for president, he was in a debate and he was called out by, you know, it was one of those debates when the when the very new thing to do was include uh, questions from average ordinary people. And he was called out by someone saying, hey, look, you're a Yankee fan. And Rudy is a big Yankee fan. And, and he said, how can you root for the Red Sox? This was Rudy Giuliani's explanation. I'm an American. I'm an American League fan. I root for the American League team when they get into the World Series. I've done it for 50 years. I actually rooted for the Red Sox. Can't help it. I'm an American League fan. I rooted for the White Sox, the Tigers, the Red Sox. As soon as the World Series are over, I rooted for the Yankees again. We're going to beat you next year. I unfortunately have, have lost a bet already to John McCain with the Arizona Diamondbacks, so I don't have a 100 record. But I do point out that when I was mayor of New York City, the Yankees won four World Championships. Now, he then, and then he went on to say that since he left being mayor, they've won zero. But he got killed for that answer. All the New York papers did articles about how can Rudy Giuliani root for the Red Sox. I gave Rudy a lot of credit for that because that's always been my philosophy. You stick with your league, and sometimes it's tough. When the Braves play the Yankees, for instance, as a Met fan, you know how difficult it is to root for the Braves? In fact, one of the times they played the Braves and the Yankees played the Braves, I couldn't even root. I just had to uh, just watch and not root. But I do think league loyalty counts for something. Now, why? I mean, I'm always the guy sitting here on the radio saying partisan loyalty and partisanship should not trump um, deciding an individual race or an individual issue based on the merits. So why should league loyalty to decide who I root for? The answer is I don't know. Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's, um, I, I don't know. So th- this is what I'm trying to figure out. As of now, look, I mean, d- d- who cares who I root for? I'm curious what you're doing. Uh, but, and you can weigh in at 800-848-9222. As of now, my inclination is to support the Philadelphia Phillies for league loyalty reasons. That's my inclination. But whereas usually I'm at 90% likelihood that I'm going to do this, this year I'm more at about 60-40. And part of me wants to root for my league, the National League, because I'm sort of clinging to an era 
where the league distinctions meant something. And by still supporting a team because they're the National League team, in my brain anyway, if not in reality, I'm still clinging to a time when the National League and the American League were different. I'm curious what you do. 800-848-9222. I can be persuaded otherwise, but at this point, I'm going with Philly. Fred is in Garfield, New Jersey. Hello, Fred. I've been a Yankee fan, but uh, I feel the better team is Philly, so I'm going to vote for Philly. I root for Philly. But I wanted to tell you something about Yogi Berra that I feel you might not know. It'd be interesting. When he played, Martha Stewart used to babysit for his children because she lived near him in Nutley. Is that right? I actually did not know that. I found that out on a, on a, a show, you know, where they ask questions, trivia questions. That's how I found it yeah, out. That, when I found that is it news out, to I, me. I thought it was wow. cute. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea, and I thought I, I thought you were going to bring up some yogiism or some aspect of Yogi's biography that right. I've heard a hundred times, right. and I have never heard that. I that's incredible if that's true. Yeah, because she, she was a teenager, he was in his prime, and she they lived close, and she babysitted for his kids, his daughters. That's wild. Hey, I appreciate you sharing that, Fred. Thank okay. you. Okay. You're welcome. 800-848-9222. Fred is abandoning his league. Are you? Should I? Now, Giuliani, and again, I had all this audio of him talking about this at the time in 2007, 2008. But it's currently on an external hard drive, which I cannot plug in to the computer that I'm currently using. So I'm a little bit handicapped here. Because I had all this audio of him talking about this at the time, and I didn't want to call the mayor up at 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I know he said he listens to this show, so mayor, if you're awake, feel free to call in, 800-848-9222. I didn't want to call the mayor at 11.30, 12 o'clock and get him on tape for five minutes talking about which league to root for when he's got bigger fish to fry. You know, he's worried about trying to get his law license back, being subpoenaed in this investigation, that investigation. Oh, uh, Mayor, it's Frank Morano. Uh, explain to me why you're rooting for the Astros. <laughs> and one of the things he said, and I don't feel this way with football, but he would be asked about this all over the place. I, and I'm telling you, people have forgotten this now, but he got a great deal of criticism for this back in the t- at the time. Is he said the same thing with football? He said he's a giant fan, and so when it comes to the Super Bowl, he's rooting for the AFC team. I have never had that league loyalty with a football team. It's for I don't I don't know why football is different. Maybe it's because I grew up without them having interleague play in baseball, and they always had it in in football in my lifetime. Maybe that's the reason, but I never had that league loyalty with football. I have always had it with baseball. So I'm just curious, what do you do? Do you abandon league loyalty? Do you stick with it? 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Frank, I'm going to give a qualified answer because I originally started out as a Mets fan rooting for Tom Seaver. Then I saw the light and switched over to the American League and for the Yankees. What made you switch, by the way? I just loved seeing the games at Yankee Stadium. This was around the time... Um, uh, they, well, actually, let me rephrase it. 
I just like the Yankees. I saw them. They were remodeling Yankee Stadium at the time. I saw them play at Chase Stadium. And uh, I, I just had a greater affinity. I think it was also because I felt that the Mets were not treating Seaver well. At, well, at that's time. certainly true. They certainly didn't. But, uh, but okay, so now you're a Yankee fan. And where do you come down on the question of loyalty to your league? As much as I'm not happy about the Astros sweeping the Yankees, I will be rooting for them. But here's the exception. When the Mets were in the World Series, I was rooting for them because I felt my New York loyalties mm. were stronger. Well, I understand especially that. Especially if they were playing the, against the Red Sox, which I detest. So, Yeah, I, I understand that. And thank you, John. See, for the Mets... When the Braves make the World Series or the Philadelphia Phillies make the World Series, it's almost it's not quite like the Red Sox Red Sox making it because there's nothing like the rivalry between the Red Sox and the um and the Yankees. But as a Met fan, it's tough. It's tough to root for the Braves or the Phillies because you're so used to because your interests during the season are directly at odds with theirs. So it's tough to kind of flick a switch. And I get that. But I still feel that, uh, I don't know, league loyalty should count for something. What about if it was the Phillies versus the Yankees? Well, that was the case back in 2008, and I supported the, I supported the Phillies. So, it was very tough, but uh, I had so to do So you it. put league, baseball league loyalty over your New York roots? Well, I, keep in mind, though, until recently, I was always very adamant uh, about rooting against the Yankees, right? Even no matter who they were playing. Right. right? Um, so uh, to me, the Phillies Yankees matchup, and I recorded a video of this at the time. It might be on YouTube or something somewhere explaining. It took a half hour to explain because there was this movement that was building at the time called Met Fans for Yankees. And I did my best to try to quash that. But um, I, I, it was so it was a twofer. It was one rooting against the Yankees, which was my natural inclination anyway, and two sticking with your league. But then. As we saw, the joke was on me because the same thing happened as has happened whenever a Philadelphia team wins a world championship in baseball since 1929. The economy tanked the following year. So I don't know if by rooting for the Phillies again, I'm inviting the same sort of economic cataclysm, which as you know, somebody that's got a mortgage to pay and a, a, a toddler to uh, provide for, I'm not eager to see the economy collapse. See, Frank, the only time I would root for the league, per se, is if it's the All-Star game. Like, you're obviously an NL guy, so you root for the NL and the All-Star game. I'm an AL guy. If it's the World Series, I am not rooting for the Boston Red Sox just because they're American League. Well, what I'm about actually... what Rudy Giuliani said there? It's America's mayor. How can you disagree with America's <laughs> mayor? How dare you? I just I can't. If it's the Red Sox, I will refuse. And the same goes with the Astros. I don't know how you can root for Philly though, because there it's very tough. There's That's, such a rival. That, this to your is mess. what I'm saying. I am very conflicted. My entire existence is marred by conflict. Right. I I am um I'm like Hamlet. Right. My whole day is just me wrestling with myself. Right. I I now have to shave in the shower so that I can stop yelling at the guy in the mirror when I would shave um, in, in a conventional shaving mirror. It is very difficult. I am very conflicted about everything, including this. And uh, I I this is why I'm seeking a little guidance here. 800-848-9222. Kenneth says no league loyalty. 
Fred says no league loyalty. John Kwok says league loyalty except when there's a New York team. And I don't know what you're saying, Matt Blazer. No league loyalty. No league no. loyalty. Boy, I'd say Rudy Giuliani and I are dinosaurs here. I'll tell you what. Maybe we'll get Rudy on the show between now and Friday. And uh, maybe we will do an interview with him about this because I, I feel like he can articulate the case for league loyalty much better than I can. And you know what? There's no reason for league loyalty, except, as Rudy said there, it, that I've always done it pretty much. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, Frank? Uh, yeah, no league loyalty. I mean, well, my, my, my reason is a little simpler. I had gone to a Phillies game this year, and we had a great time. So that's why I, even like two, three weeks ago, I said if the Yankees don't get in, then I'm going to go for the Phillies. But little by little, to me, they're, they're getting rid of leagues little by little. Like next year, we're playing every team's playing every team. And, and you're right. And you're right. Little, that's what I'm saying. Moving it out. It, it, that's what I'm saying is the leagues exist now as there's no distinct culture in the leagues. The leagues are more just glorified divisions. Yep. They're, little by little, they're, they're, they're getting rid of leagues. And they're just, they're just making every – it's just a big – just. That's it. Just baseball. And, 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 and thank you, Chris. And um, best of luck to the Phillies. I went to a Philly game one time with my friend JFK. We had a good time. So, you know, all the more reason to root for the Phillies. But um, I will say, though, that part of the fact that these leagues are being made to be little more than theoretical lines, it makes me want to root for my league even more because I am clinging to an era which is fast disappearing, a league where the National League meant something, an era where these leagues came with it a very distinct set of fandom and a very distinct culture. And I know that era is disappearing if it's not gone already. But by rooting for the National League team, I'm, I'm clinging to that. 800-848-9222. Adam is in Manalapan, a city made up entirely of Staten Island expatriates. Hello, Adam. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well. I appreciate you asking. Thank you. No league loyalty. Frank, I, you know, when I, I'm 55, when I was younger, I always remember Yankees playing the big red machine and seeing all those guys, George Foster, Tony Pena, Concepcion, and I had their baseball cards. I appreciated them. I, I can't. Vote for that. I can't go. It's my Yankees and and forever. I can't like like the Astros. I can't like another. I can appreciate somebody hitting a home run. I can appreciate a great play watching the World Series, but I won't have them in my corner. I can't. They are plotting against my Yankees all the time. How can I? How can I do that? Well, you These know, guys and, are and I can, from, from your perspective, I can understand. It's so easy to root against the Astros because of that cheating scandal. They're a bunch of cheaters. And how can you yes, root sir. for a team like that? So yes, I can sir. understand from your perspective where you're coming from, Adam. So needless to say, you're supporting the Philadelphia Phillies. Yes, and Frank, I miss that it was just playoffs, one playoff, and then it was the World Series. And we were against the like Yankees, against the American League and National League. I miss that. When, well, when I, I was younger, you. it was so fantastic. I, I hear you, Adam. I, I hear you. However, just in defense of this new playoff picture, and I think it's gotten a little carried away, too. But just to play devil's advocate, 
it you know it used to be if your team was eliminated fairly early in the season what sense did it was it to keep watching the games right Th- now you have teams that are in it in some cases till the very last weekend of the season it it's sort of exciting for the fans in these in these markets that are right on the bubble and it sort of underscores the importance of playoff baseball look you see this with the Philadelphia Phillies i think if the phillies are able to win this world championship and this is one of the reasons that i am kind of wanting to root for them because they do have kind of a cinderella story i think they will be one of the few teams in history to win fewer than 90 games, uh, which I think they that it was their record this year. i got to check that. But one of the few teams in history to win less than 90 games and win a world championship. There's something, there's something charming about that, I think, for the fans. Very, very true. And this is why we're conflicted and we, um, in the shower we have to shave. <laughs> thank you, Frank. Adam, thank you. Appreciate it. 800 848 Nine two two two. We'll move on to other subjects that are not baseball related. At this point, though, even though I'm in the minority, I'm still sticking with my league. Uh, I didn't hear a compelling reason to abandon my league. In fact, hearing uh, Kenneth and the others um, make clear what I already knew, which is that the role of these leagues has been eradicated, more theoretical than real. I'm kind of clinging to that league nostalgia. And um, that's that's kind of where I am at the moment. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to try and dissuade me. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Let me tell you what's coming up. Um, coming up in about two hours... We're going to talk a little bit about, not a little bit, we're going to talk with a, a retiree who moved down to Mexico, and she and her husband have been terrorized, terrorized by narco-terrorists. And unfortunately, these drug gangs have been aided by the Mexican police. So we're going to get into this discussion with uh, Janet Sanders in about two hours. And then in about three hours, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with my old friend Jen Kearns. She's been a guest on this show before, longtime political operative. She's a talk show hostess. She's got a new book out, and um, she had asked to come on the show to promote her new book, but she has not yet sent me a copy of the new book. So I have not read the book. Couldn't tell you if it's the best book in the world or the worst. But it's always fun to talk to Jen, and she's got a good sense of humor, and she likes to uh, – she can deal with me busting her chops and things like that. So um, 800 848 
Meantime, an inmate inside a maximum security prison in Georgia reportedly stole, are you ready for this? $11 million by convincing Charles Schwab customer service representatives that he was actually California billionaire Sidney Kimmel. More on that in a second. Our friend Obi Murray is checking in. Hello, Obi. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Pick it up, speaker there. Sorry about that, Bob. So, how much time we got? <laughs> you tell me, hey, Frank. The the loyalty to the team is one thing, but remember, you and I grew up in an era too where it was a loyal. The, the players were fantastic. I mean, the Redskins with Riggins, or you know, Namath and the Jets and so forth, and you stayed with the Jets. But the players are always changing too. Well, that's true. I mean, with free agency, that's right. That you don't see a lot of players sticking with their team for their entire career anymore. That's for sure. Think about this: you could be rooting against Yankees fans. Could be rooting against Judge next year, unless the Yankees write the right check. Well, you're right. You're right. No, I, I mean that it, is part of what has diminished my enthusiasm for for baseball. Honestly, baseball and fandom. Don't forget, in, in '86, Rudy was rooting for the Red Sox against the Mets. Right. Using that. Right, he was by his own admission. I think. Well, by by his, if you follow theory through, yeah, yeah. No, so I am. Uh, we're going to get Rudy on, on the on the radio this weekend. We'll we'll try and get him to clarify exactly what the Rudy rule is with respect to uh, league loyalty. But so you're in the camp. You're in the Kenneth camp that league loyalty counts for nothing these days. My choice to be with Kenneth or you. I'll take Kenneth any day. <laughs> Hey, I'm up in Vermont today, too, so you got callers calling from all over, buddy. That's right. Hey, uh, thank you. It was good seeing you Saturday. Thanks for bringing over that maple syrup. Yeah, you, I thought you'd like the Portuguese uh, liquor more than syrup. Uh, well, I st- that, the, the, syrup. The, the big difference is there's still some syrup left. <laughs> oh. All right, all right still, my friend. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. In a real-life saga with plot twists straight out of Hollywood, federal authorities believe A man locked away in a Georgia prison stole $11 million from a billionaire movie mogul. And he may have gotten away with stealing millions more from other billionaires. This story is just fascinating. I can't do it justice. So I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Please read it when you can. It involves gold coins, a private plane, duffel bags stuffed with cash, and a mansion. It's straight out of Hollywood. And it adds up to potentially one of the biggest heists ever pulled from an American, from inside an American prison. It's made even more shocking by the fact that the inmate was in the Georgia Department of Corrections Special Management Unit. What's the Special Management Unit? That is a maximum security facility designed to house the state's most hardened criminals. And he still was able to pull this off. So for more than two years, federal agents and attorneys have been sifting through evidence they believe points to how 31-year-old Arthur Lee Cofield Jr., assumed the identity of California billionaire Sidney Kimmel and stole $11 million from Kimmel's Charles Schwab account. Kimmel 
is the chairman and CEO of Sidney Kimmel Entertainment. The I, I think, and don't quote me on this, but I think if you go to NYU, they have the Kimmel Center, which is relatively new. It's about 20 years old. I think that's named for Sidney Kimmel because he gave some money to NYU. I could be incorrect about that. But the Los Angeles-based company, Kimmel Entertainment, is responsible for a lot of lucrative films, a lot of very good films. Hell or High Water, which was a terrific film. Crazy Rich Asians, terrific film. Moneyball, a terrific film And in keeping with our previous topic. Federal authorities believe that Cofield, using a contraband cell phone or multiple contraband cell phones, convinced customer service representatives at Charles Schwab that he was Kimmel and arranged for $11 million to be wired to a company in Idaho for the purchase of 6,106 American Eagle one-ounce gold coins. Cofield then allegedly arranged for a private plane. This is all from prison. And again, this is horrible that anybody would do this. But there's some aspect of this that I can't help but get a big kick out of, that this guy is running this lucrative scam from a maximum security prison. Cofield then arranged for a private plane to transport the coins to Atlanta, where some were used to buy a $4.4 million house in Buckhead, a big mansion in Buckhead. Jose Morales, who was the warden when Cofield was there, said Cofield was a shrewd, intelligent individual who could con you out of millions. Um, He has pled not guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit bank fraud and money laundering. Two others, uh, 65-year-old Eldridge Bennett and his 27-year-old daughter, Elijah Bennett, have also pleaded not guilty to charges that they worked on the outside to further this scheme. Almost nothing has been reported. Uh, Have you seen this case anywhere? I haven't. I really had to dig to find this, which is shocking because you'd think this is the kind of case that you'd think would be everywhere. Little has been reported about the case since federal authorities first uncovered it two years ago. But recent court filings and other documents reveal significant new details, including the fact that Kimmel was the victim and that he may not be the only one. Beyond the sort of cinematic aspect of this, this case provides yet another example of the Department of Corrections in Georgia and their failure to stop illegal activities. Long before federal authorities got involved in this case, the GDC knew that Cofield, a documented gang member serving a 14-year sentence for armed robbery, had the ability to get his hands on contraband cell phones and use them for criminal activity. And yet, in a maximum security prison, he was still able to do it. I don't understand it. In fact, Cofield was actually moved from Georgia State Prison to the Special Management Unit after a warrant for his arrest was issued in Fulton County for ordering a shooting in Atlanta. He still faces charges, including attempted murder for that crime. Cofield was released from GDC custody in October of last year after completing his sentence for armed robbery, and he was placed in federal custody where he remains now. The attorney representing Cofield in both the federal and the state case declined to make himself available for an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But it's so interesting to me that this guy 
was just targeting billionaires. Nothing in the court filings reveals how Cofield may have come to target Kimmel, though it appears the movie maker was not the only one that he targeted. Kimmel is 94 years old. He's worth a billion and a half dollars, according to Forbes. Totally self-made. He founded the apparel company Jones New York and sold it for $2.2 billion. And now he focuses on filmmaking and philanthropy. Um, This is wild. Such a wild case. So, so far, the federal authorities have only charged Cofield with scamming Kimmel, but they do believe it's likely he stole millions in a similar fashion from other billionaires as well. But uh, no criminal charges have been filed in uh, in any of those cases. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, they say maybe um, Nicole Wertheim, who's the wife of Florida billionaire Herbert Wertheim, and others as well. So we'll see. Apparently he had access to hundreds of phones that he was using to carry out these scams. And again, this is a horrible thing to do. And uh, I'm not trying to glorify criminality here. But there's a part of me that can't help but, I don't want to say admire the guy, but give the guy credit for the audaciousness of this scam. Can you see where I'm coming from? 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls and a bunch of other fun stuff in mere moments. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is uh, Judas Priest, Breaking the Law, a uh, Matt Blaze selection. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the program, uh, you could just join our Facebook group to search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Coming up in a little while, we'll go through your mail. If you want to email me and have your comments read on the radio, you can do so at uh, frank.morano. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And um, if you want to be heard via phone, you can do so at 800-848-9222. We uh, have open phone lines right now, so uh, you won't have a hard time getting through. I will tell you, so my wife was out on Long Island Last weekend, she went out with her friend. They rented a house. They went out there for the um, Stony Brook homecoming game. And then she went and spent time with my sister-in-law and some other family out there. And she had, you know, kind of a weekend, a girls weekend out on Long Island. So my wife tells me yesterday, actually, I guess now it's two days ago. She's finally home. And she says that her throat hurts. And... She is all of a sudden wanting to make herself a cup of tea. And she is looking for cough drops. And now I'm nervous. I'm very nervous. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. 
She went out there. She's gallivanting all around, got herself a cold, and now she's going to give it to me. And I can't, I, you know, I mean, I don't mean to, not that anyone can has the time to get a cold, but can't really get a cold right now. I mean, I'm dependent on my melodious voice making a living and being at its best. So then yesterday, her condition has not improved. She's downing cough drops. She's taken Zycam. She's taken Airborne. Now, fortunately, I still have no symptoms. I feel bad for her that she's running a household and looking after our son, especially he's experiencing a lot of teething problems and is not really sleeping at night. He was up, you know, four times since I left a few hours ago, and he's apparently been very cranky, and I think it's because he has two new teeth coming in. And it's causing him a lot of pain. She gave him Tylenol and stuff. So I feel bad that she's not able to sleep when she has this cold. But her friend also is sick. Her friend Virginia, who she went out with out there to Long Island, she's sick too. So now the two of them are sick. They have some sort of a cold, sore throat, not COVID. Uh, Her friend took the COVID test. It's negative. And I am just waiting, inevitably, for me to get hit with this. I am waiting for me to be the next victim of this thing. And thankfully, no cough yet. She's just got this sore throat. And she sounds the same to me anyway. But uh, we'll see. If I develop a cold of some sort in the next day or two, we'll see. Now, hopefully, my immune system will be able to fight this off. I've been taking the balance of nature, which is good, and, you know, a lot of other supplements, a lot of other vitamins to try and fight this off. We'll see where it goes. But it is um, it is worrisome, potentially, that, uh, you know, that we have this, this cold situation looming on the, on the horizon. All right, uh, 800-848-922 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. We're also on Twitter at Frank Moreno. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. You know, um, it was very nice. Somebody on Twitter, and look, a lot of people write nice things, but uh, somebody on Twitter referred to this show as literally addictive. And you know what? I, I think that's a very good description. You know, I, I realize the word literally is often overused. It's overused to the point where we don't even really have a word that means literally anymore. But I can absolutely understand where that guy is coming from. It's a show that I, if I were just a regular listener, I would be compelled to listen to each and every minute of it. You know why? Because you don't ever know what you're going to get. Sometimes you get baseball talk. Sometimes you get talk about Ukraine and nuclear war. Sometimes you get talk about prison scams. Sometimes you get uh, conversation about sore throat avoidance. Sometimes you get alien talk. You just never know. And there's not a lot of other shows like that where you just never quite know exactly what you're uh, going to experience. But um, it is interesting. I, um, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to talking with Janet Sanders coming up in about an hour and a half. She is really fed up with the fact that the Mexican police seem to be in bed with these drug cartels, right? And I think that uh, she's speaking for a lot of people down there in Mexico. And unfortunately, in the American media, she has more of a voice in doing so because she happens to be an American. So we'll tell you her story coming up in a little while. It is a fascinating one. Now, meantime, I was uh, I was actually asleep, I think, on Saturday morning 
when I got word that a guest that was supposed to be on this show actually called into the weekend show that's on 77 WABC in New York, the Curtis Lee show. And this is a guest that we had booked for, I think, Friday. And this was uh, maybe maybe the fault is mine for not following up. But this happens more frequently than you would imagine, even though I reiterate this 100 times. It was a guest. We were going to talk about demons. And I thought this was fun for Halloween. Demons and all sorts of stuff. And I booked him for Friday, the 21st, at 3.30. But he calls in. Saturday, the 22nd, thinking, I guess, in his mind that it's Friday night, but I booked him for Friday morning. So uh, you can imagine Curtis had some fun with this. This is uh, Mr. Gorga or Mr. Gorga calling in to talk demons with a radio demon, Curtis Sliwa. But there's a lot of money at stake, Michael, and there's going to be a lot of whining, dining and pocket lining. Oh, that's definitely true. And uh, one other thing, the the uh, I think you were getting set up again tonight by uh, Jennifer Grodd when the uh, the red bat phone went off, and uh, it was that you know the demons among us uh, guy who was supposed to be calling in or something. Yep. I I think that was just another setup for you, just like the, you know the Loch Ness monster guy. Yeah, it could be. Uh, in fact, just uh, to recall, uh, Avery, our telephone talent coordinator, this guy, the book author who called in on that special line that only Jennifer Grodd knows the number to, the special guest hotline, uh, he had called when to book uh, his appearance? August 9th. It was like four months ago, right? August 9th, he booked his appearance. And they told him to call this morning at what time, Avery? He called at one thirty. At one thirty, it was booked by the celebrity um, booker, <laughs> Jennifer Grodd. And the poor guy, you know, I, I just looked. It's a number one bestseller. It's a, <laughs> he's a really good author. And he, he was, like, really pissed. You can imagine, Michael, really pissed. He lives over in Europe, so... By the time he called, it must have been about 5 o'clock in the morning there. Oh, yeah. I looked him up as well, and I think he's like a really big deal in the horror fiction uh, world, you know? Yeah, but, I mean, think about it, Michael. They set it up four months before. They never double-check with the guy like, oh, we're off by a day. And they leave the guy hanging. And you know, Michael, I can't cross over into that lane. That's Frank Morano's specialty interviews. If I were to interview him, that would be considered quite a faux pas. That you, you just don't do that in talk radio annals. I don't think he was off by a day. You know, yeah, I, I get it. You're you're, you're uh, you know you're a stand up guy, and uh, that's that's Frank's uh, line of work. You know, if he was off by a day, wouldn't they notice if they didn't have the guy there yesterday? No, because you know how they are. <laughs> They're stunards. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that they book people and then they forget about it. And luckily they call in and then all of a sudden they got to scramble. Because, you, you know, you know how helter-skelter Frank Morano is. He's like, uh, you talk about a guy who needs Adderall. He's got attention deficit disorder. He forgets half the things you tell him. I tell him, Frank, write it down. You won't forget it. No, I don't need to write it down. I can remember. 
Frank, here, I'm going to give you a Sharpie. Write it in the palm of your hand if you don't have a piece of paper. You can always wash your hands off. No, I don't need to do it. I'll ask him a week later, and he goes, oh, I forgot. That's because well, you didn't write it down. Maybe you can go check the dice and AC. It's it, it written on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's all he cares about, shooting craps at the Borgata because he loves to schnorr free stuff. He's one of the last of the old talk radio show hosts and hostesses who live to schnorr free stuff. A couple of things based on what uh, Curtis said there. One, uh, one, I certainly don't mind schnorring free stuff. That's that's for starters. Two, I actually really don't play much craps at the Borgata anymore because they don't offer five times odds except on the numbers six and eight. Uh, three... You know, uh, either Avery or Curtis or both of them. The real, it's a real heckle and jekyll show. The two of them got over there. What chemistry between the two of them? I mean, it's just electric. Um, but um, th- three, uh, they blamed Jennifer Grodd for booking that fellow, Mister Gorga. That was my booking, and because I had no computer on Friday, I did not have access to my guest notes. So that's why there was no follow-up with him Friday morning. We were in chaos because my computer had collapsed. Four, I think I'm up to four. Four, I do write things down all the time, all the time. And I'll tell you what, as someone that was an integral part of Curtis's campaign for mayor of New York City, you know who we had to worry about not writing things down? Curtis. Curtis, he would just commit to going to events all over the city with no no qualms about whether he was already booked elsewhere. So I, I will admit, in my youth, it was, <laughs> I did not always write things down as much as I should. But they say, in, in the words of that philosopher Pete Townsend, no one appreciates the power of a flame more than someone who's gotten burned. So now I write everything down. I got, I got a pad here. I got a computer. I got a mobile phone. I write things down sometimes too often. So I'm writing everything down, and I, that is a lesson I have learned from Curtis. But um, and obviously, Curtis could have interviewed the guy if he wanted to. What is what is Mr. Gorga going to do? He's going to say, "Oh no, I refuse to be interviewed by anyone but Frank Morano." He could have inter- interviewed the guy. And look, you see on the radio how many different radio shows interview some of the same people. Needless to say, Curtis does a very different type of interview than I do. Uh, but he's going to join us. Though th- this is all roundabout way of saying. Mr. Gorga is going to join us to talk demons on Wednesday, which I think is a very appropriate segment leading into Halloween, right? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Tony is in Clifton. Hello, Tony. Hi, how are you? I'm well, so thanks. I just, I just want to give you my two secrets to warding off a cold, just if it's in the air and whatever. One thing is rest because I found like little power naps mm. give me that extra strength. So if you could squeeze them in, I don't know how. Do that because that will keep you rest just does so much for the body. It heals it really and it keeps your immune system up. The other thing, I don't know if Curtis is I would just limit any stress whether it's you know like just Keep your stress level down. Those are just two silly things. It's cool rest and de-stress. Yeah, I don't think those are silly at all. I've certainly seen the power of sleep and rest in terms of 
healing. And I imagine that's certainly true, as you say, for avoidance of a cold to begin with. And uh, sometimes that's easier said than done. But uh, absolutely, that is something that I'm going to make even more of a priority. Uh, Good stuff, though, Tony. Thank you. You take care. I appreciate it, Tony. Take care. Have a good night or a good morning. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. See, that's a nice lady, right? And no, I, I'm not, I don't get stressed out by Curtis. Curtis is not even in the top 100 things that I get, uh, that I get stressed out about. But uh, it, is, it is interesting. Uh, I mean, Curtis does have a way with, um, with sarcasm. And, you know, I fancy myself as having a dry sense of humor, right? But Curtis has a way where... A lot of people believe what he says is true. Even just past, last week when I did that segment on that CBS Sunday Morning had done on talk radio, people were commenting, oh, wasn't 60 Minutes going to hire Frank? Now, no, they were never going to hire me. The only person that ever said that is Curtis. And yet, why does Curtis never, is, why is he never the beret who cried wolf? Everyone always believes him. He's got a way with things. He reminds me a little bit of um, <laughs> Jeff's father from American Dad, who certainly had a way with sarcasm. So, Dad, Stan's a friend of mine from Langley Falls. I've got a pretty good life up there. I'm in charge of tire inflation at the bike shop. <gasps> tire inflation? Oh, that is so great. Of course, I'm not surprised. That's just the latest in a long list of achievements. I'm so proud of my son. In fact, this is the wall where I keep all his awards. What? There's nothing there. Oh, my God. They've been stolen. I better call the sheriff. We're going to get to the bottom of this. It's ringing. Hello, Sheriff Perkins. Henry Fisher. Yes, yes. Father of the illustrious Jeff Fisher. Someone has stolen all his awards. All of them. Must have been several strong men with a huge truck. What? What do you mean Jeff's never won an award in his entire life? But if that were true, that would mean my son is a worthless piece of crap who never accomplished anything. Well, sir, I'm not going to sit here while you say those awful things about my pride and joy. I promise you, son, I will not rest until I get every single ribbon, trophy, and letter of commendation back on that wall. I'm going to go down to the bar, round up a posse. We'll get Charlie Stoggs. Close off a perimeter. You just sit there and... Keep on making me proud. Isn't he great? Great? Jeff, your dad is a humongous jerk. No, he's just kidding around. He loves me. That's why he can never know what happened in Florida. Look, Jeff, no one wants to admit their dad is a bad guy, but... Bad guy? Look who's talking. You're the one who tricked me and All pretended right, well, so to be my friend. I think friend. you get the uh, the gist of, uh, of that, but uh, that's from American Dad. Jeff is uh, married to Stan's daughter, Haley, on the show. Um... I really will give Curtis credit. He he has a way with sarcasm that is much more believable than uh, what Jeff's dad is going through. By the way, I want to thank Ellen. Uh, I This is what you get for assuming Kimmelism. The Kimmel Center at NYU is not named for Sidney Kimmel. It's named for another philanthropist by the name of Martin Kimmel. So I stand corrected. I don't want to be putting out any misinformation. Uh, my apologies to Martin Kimmel. I did not mean to diminish your significant contributions to academia. All right, we're going to talk Russia, Ukraine, Twitter, nuclear war, and more. Keep asking questions.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I find Elon Musk to be one of the most fascinating people on the planet. I have to say that. I I do keep sort of a a list of dream interviews, and I I am going to put Elon Musk on there. Again, unfortunately, my list of dream interviews is currently on a computer that I can't currently access, so I have no idea who else is on my list at the moment. But if I ever do get access to that list again... I will add Elon Musk. And I really have been fascinated by this battle over Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. So basically, Elon Musk made an agreement to buy Twitter, right? And I I think everybody knows most of this. Twitter is one of the most popular social media websites. And a lot of us that go on Twitter are very eager for Musk to take it over because it seems like Elon Musk has a fondness for things like free speech or at least more of a tolerance for free speech than the current guardians of Twitter content would prefer. So ultimately, Elon Musk says, no, I'm not buying Twitter anymore. He says that this is because he wasn't getting accurate information about the number of bots and fake accounts that were on Twitter. I have never bought that. I think it's more of the fact that Twitter's stock price fell and he didn't want to overpay by five or six billion dollars. I think that's what this whole thing was about. And the Twitter people. So Elon Musk says, I'm backing out of the deal. The Twitter people said, oh, no, no, you're not. We have an agreement. And if you back out of this deal, you're going to pay us a billion dollars. Now, pretty soon, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. You Sooner or later, you're talking real money. So. There was there's this trial that um, they're moving forward with in Delaware. And then it looked like everything got. Um, everything got resolved because it looked like Elon Musk said, you know what? I actually will buy Twitter again. And then what happened on Monday? There's a Bloomberg report that sent Twitter stock tumbling before the opening of trading on Monday that the U.S. might be, quote, weighing options for stopping the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk on national security grounds. Everybody understand what's going on here? Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter. Twitter wants to sell it to him. But... The government is at least this is what Bloomberg is reporting. The government is saying this is not accurate. They put out a statement a few hours ago saying it's not true. But what Bloomberg is reporting and the pretty well sourced story, what they're saying is that the federal government is weighing stopping this on national security grounds. So what happened? What happened between the time that Elon Musk agreed to buy this and the timing of this Bloomberg article on, on Sunday. Well, Elon Musk put out a tweet with a Russian-Ukraine peace plan. And the 
tweet looks and the plan that Elon Musk laid out. And keep in mind, this is a guy that has been providing Starlink satellites to the Ukrainians to enable their communications for free, for free, for months now. But now, because he has the audacity to suggest diplomacy and self-determination, now he is, like me, a Russian propagandist. So it sounds like Elon Musk, for the crime of pursuing Twitter financially, has perhaps called in or will be for some kind of national defense review of his activities. The basis for this is his tweet about Russia or his tweets about a possible compromise plan with Putin over the Ukraine war. It seems that Elon Musk's pursuit of Twitter has been continually rebuffed and usually using the same message that the American security state or whatever you want to call it, some people call it the deep state, some people call it the military-industrial complex, whatever you want to call this entity, this marriage, this hybrid between forces within the government and the big money behind the military defense contractors, which we're going to talk about in a second. They can't afford for Twitter to fall into the hands of someone that rejects the bipartisan consensus on constant war that comes out of Washington. Even a free-thinking capitalist like Elon Musk. So this latest thing, meaning the Bloomberg report, sounds like an admission that Twitter is at least in some ways an arm of the security the security state. That it's vital to their mission in shaping opinion, maybe domestically, maybe internationally, and controlling the narrative around events like the Ukraine war. I don't know that they've ever come out and shown that as positively as they have with this idea that he's going to be called down to the principal's office for the crime of trying to buy Twitter. It's funny because for the first six or seven years... We've had a lot of these controversies about speech, where somebody's taken off the Internet. Maybe Alex Jones gets sent to some sort of Internet purgatory or to whatever that is. This is a completely different level. This would be, in my view, and I think Matt Saibi said the same thing on his podcast recently, this would be the mother of all First Amendment stories. If they shut down Elon Musk from buying Twitter because of his tweets about Russia, essentially there is no First Amendment because that would be so egregious. To deem the private purchase of a social media platform as being subject to the national security bureaucracy which could exercise veto power over that. I can't think of anything in our history that would even come close to that. The only thing I could think of is when during the Civil War, when Lincoln was uh, jailing newspaper editors. That's the only thing that I think comes even close to that. But this is so much worse because we're talking a global stage. We're talking the um, nuclear war being at stake. And we're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions, of users. I think it's hundreds of millions of Twitter users. So one thing this proves is that there's no such thing as 
so much money that you don't have to worry about what the government says. They can always come and find a way to get you. Now, let's take a look at who is profiting from this conflict in Ukraine, because this is important. Arms manufacturers' dividends are skyrocketing as national budgets, not just our own, but the U.K. and other countries as well, as national budgets spend more on weapons. Is this money well spent, your tax money being used to make some uh, arms manufacturers wealthy, or do the most vulnerable suffer? You know where where I stand. I find this uh, to be really alarming. You know who else is? Uh, and so I think this is just horrendous. There's um, there's also <clears throat> a big story. Uh, it's not directly related to Ukraine, but it's not completely divorced from it either. The U.S. has increased arms sales abroad despite President Biden's campaign during the election. Big report by the Quincy Institute. We've had guys from the Quincy Institute on the show. One of my favorite think tanks. They say in this report that current U.S. arms policy and practice fuels war rather than deterring it. So despite an election pledge by President Biden to not, quote, check America's values at the door when it comes to arms sales, the U.S. has increased not decreased its weapon sales around the world, including to countries with repressive regimes. According to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, most of those sales also involve just four companies, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, and General Dynamics. Those four were involved in 58% of all the major offers made since the Biden administration took office. U.S. arms offers did did drop sharply in the first year of the Biden administration from $110.9 billion in the last year of the Trump administration to just $36 billion. But this report suggests the decrease could be partly due to a less aggressive approach to arms sales promotion, but was more likely the result of market saturation caused by a large volume of deals concluded during the Trump and Obama administrations. As of October, Annual arms sales have increased to $65 billion, partly due to increased sales to Europe and Asia, tied to the um, Pentagon's focus on competition with Russia and China. Um, The report says, this is a quote, current U.S. arms policy and practice too often fuel war rather than deterring it. Roughly two-thirds of current conflicts... That's 34 out of 46 involve one or more parties armed by the United States. We are selling weapons that allow countries around the world to make war. And it is these four companies that are getting rich doing it. Um, And it's easy to see why certain countries have so much uh, juice with certain with our government. Retired U.S. military brass are cashing in big time on their work with autocrats in the Middle East. Hundreds of U.S. veterans, including former generals and other high-ranking officers, 
are cashing in on their government expertise by working for foreign countries. This is according to a pair of explosive investigations from the Project on Government Oversight and the Washington Post. The vast majority of former service members implicated in the investigations have worked for countries in the Middle East where the military has taken part in a series of wars in recent decades. Most of those have worked for military contractors in the United Arab Emirates, a country with a dismal human rights record at home and abroad, but also uh, 15 former generals and admirals have worked directly for the Saudi crown prince and defense minister, Mohammed bin Salman, who launched and has since led his country's brutal war in Yemen. Retired Marine General James Jones, who served as President Obama's national security advisor, he started working with uh, Mohammed bin Salman back in 2017 when the Saudi government enlisted General Jones to conduct an organizational assessment of the country's military. Um, this report, these pair of investigations, in my view, raise serious questions about how secondary considerations, like getting a cushy job after retirement, could affect the decision-making process of America's military leadership. After all, base pay for even the top generals in America is around $200,000 a year. Many have made far more than that in the service of foreign governments. So where are we going from here? You have the Pentagon threatening to put the brakes on Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. You have one of the largest, if not the largest, military aid package in history going from U.S. taxpayers to Ukraine to buy weapons manufactured by these four arms manufacturers. The arms manufacturers are getting rich. These former military officials are getting rich. How are you benefiting from this constant state of war that's being fueled by American-made weapons? Well, maybe you have stock in Raytheon or General Dynamics or Lockheed Martin. If you do, hey, I guess that's how you're benefiting. But I find this absolutely reprehensible. Curious if this bothers anybody else. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'll tell you who I have to give some credit for. uh, Some credit to, rather. More than two dozen liberal House members are calling on President Biden to shift course in his Ukraine strategy and pursue direct diplomacy with Russia to bring this conflict to an end. Well, why start now, right? Where have these people been for six months? I mean, better late than never. In a letter sent to Biden on Monday, this group of 30 Democrats praise Biden's efforts to uh, support Ukraine while avoiding direct U.S. involvement on the ground. But they suggest a more forceful attempt at bringing the war to an end through diplomacy is necessary to prevent a long and slogging conflict. This is from the letter. Given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, 
We also believe it is in the interest of Ukraine, the United States, and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. I am glad that there are now entities in both parties urging a little diplomacy here and a little peace. And I mean P-E-A-C-E, not a little piece of Donbass and a little piece of Crimea. So um, talking about the arms sales, Indonesia, if you want to comment, you can, 800-848-9222. And otherwise we will move on to some more fun subjects. But uh, I thought this was important. Of the U.S.-supplied nations at war, 16 received $50 million or more worth of U.S. arms between 2017 and 2021. This contradicts the longstanding argument that U.S. arms routinely promote stability and deter conflict. They don't. They do the opposite. Go figure. You give people weapons, they're going to use them. Shockingly. Indonesia ranks first as the top recipient of U.S. arms deals As of September, Greece and Germany come in next between Saudi Arabia, Jordan and the United Arab Emirates. um, The bottom three recipients total offers between three point four billion and four point seven billion have been made from January of 2021 to September of this year. Lockheed Martin had the largest share of involvement in major deals. The weapons it produces are the main component of deals worth $25.8 billion since February of 2021. I'm glad the Quincy Institute is there. I'm glad they're putting out these reports and exposing what's going on. Because I'll be honest, I find the national media totally asleep at the switch on this one. And I would love to see some changes to our policy, including restricting or at least limiting this revolving door between government and industry where you go from being a three-star general to a leading consultant at Lockheed Martin, where you go from being, um, you know, a military flag officer to being an advisor to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. I... I mean, to me, this is amazing that this goes on. I'd love to see Congress revise the Arms Export Control Act to require that Congress has to vote on some of these deals instead of the current system that simply requires um, that lets these deals go through unless there's a veto-proof majority to block them. And I wish the Biden administration would provide a little more transparency on the delivery and the use of these weapons so that we're not dependent upon think tanks like the Quincy Institute to dig through all this data and publish it. If there's there's nothing wrong here, if this is all on the up and up, be transparent about it, right? 800-848-9222. We'll see where it goes. Uh, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll get to uh, some of your mail as well. If you want to email me, you can do so. 
frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Straight in. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. stranger leave my path and this made me awful sad i don't blame you but in the meantime i was getting real mad you had a right to be and i said baby what explanation do you have what what she said she said hmm next time i said there'll be no next time that was the last time for me you told her right, and I'm very proud of you. Man, I grabbed my hat, and I headed for the door. Yeah, don't, don't, don't come back here. I knew I wouldn't be back there no more. You're doing the right thing, Sam. I walked the landlord, a real cool gent. Well, what did he say? He said, hey, Sam, how about the rent? And what you told him? I said, hmm... Next time, he said there'll be no next time. You're coming up right now. Don't give him nothing, Sam. Pay no attention to him. Man, I jumped through that window and my feet hit the ground. You was traveling fast. I figured I'd butter. The great Louis Prima. Get out of town. Wow. Uh, I think with Sam Cook good? there, well, uh, singing next time, a airport, wonderful, oh, oh, wonderful song, there if ever there was man. one. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Hey, I'm just, I've been so behind on my emails that um, that's been a big part of my priority for the day. And I, I'm just catching up on my SMS text messages now. Now, I was just answering them during the commercial, and I was answering them a little bit during the top of the hour news. I still have 64 unread SMS text messages. So if you have texted me today... And uh, have not gotten a response. Please don't think I'm being rude. I am just working to get through all these SMS text messages. So bear with me. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Cincinnati. Hello, Mike. Uh, I, I was listening to your uh, uh, condemnation of the military complex, which I uh, uh, couldn't uh, disagree. However, um uh, there, there really is no difference between the one for peace between a hawk and a dove. Uh, it's just how you think you're going to get there, and the doves have failed every time. Uh, you're not going to have peace talks with Russia if they're headed for uh, uh, the capital in, in a matter of three days like everybody thought they were going to be. Uh, now, yeah, I think I think that's exactly what should be done. We need to be talking to Putin to give him a uh, to give him an exit out of this thing uh, uh, without uh, w- without having to uh, have egg all over his face. I don't know how they're going to do it, but I'm not paid for that. All I know is I know damn well they wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't for the arms that have been sent in there and the uh, uh, potential of uh, 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 Russia getting wiped out. Well, look, I you know I, I get the 
and this is what's so frustrating to me about this. I saw, uh, I, I read all the reports of people that are becoming Ukrainian refugees or fleeing Russia because they don't want to be drafted into the Russian military and uh, fight in this war that many of them don't believe in or don't want to lay down their lives for. But I also saw an image yesterday, aside from the human cost of people losing their lives or becoming homeless or becoming um, maimed, I saw this, uh, what had been a beautiful Ukrainian monastery that was essentially rubble because it was destroyed as part of this war. And here's what kills me about all this, Mike, and you bring up a lot of great points. And uh, what kills me about this is we know, unless this ends in nuclear war, which I think everybody hopes that it doesn't, but unless this ends in nuclear war, we know how this is going to end. We know whether this ends tomorrow or five months from now, this is going to end with Crimea being a part of Russia. We know that. Now, um, the thing that Elon Musk laid out, which is similar to what I've said, is the deal should be as follows. All right. We recognize Crimea is part of Russia as it was from the time of Catherine the Great to the time of Khrushchev. That's a done deal. That's no longer a point of contention. There should be internationally supervised, internationally monitored elections, not by Russian authorities, but by an international entity like the U.N. in the Donbass region to allow those breakaway republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, to determine their own fate. Do they want to be independent? Do they want to be part of Ukraine? Do they want to be part of Russia? And then three, um, Ukraine has to pledge neutrality to essentially not be a part of uh, not be a part of NATO. And as a, as a part of that, in order to get that done, Russia has to totally withdraw all of its military between Ukraine's borders. And what's frustrating to me is I feel like a lot of this fighting is is pointless because I feel like that's the place where this is going to end and all these lives did not have to be lost. All these billions of dollars in American tax money, which we're borrowing, by the way, from countries like China and, you know, in some cases the Saudis, we're borrowing this money to give the Ukrainians. It didn't have to be spent. And the only winners here are Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics. Mike, thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. I get crazy with this Ukraine stuff. I have to limit how often we could talk about this, I think, because it's just it's just too much. Now, uh, on to what I hope with um, more er, more upbeat entities. It is time for... Let me begin with the snail mail here. I got a nice package from Josephine from Westfield, New Jersey, which I think is the community that has that house from the Netflix series The Watcher, which everybody is talking about. She sent me, she emailed me that she had tried to send this back in December, but she had the wrong address. This is a Christmas gift for my son Carmine. And a nice note from Josephine, I don't know if she wants her last name used, Dear Frank and Rachel, may the joy of parenting bring you a lifetime of laughter, love, and many memories. 
God bless little Carmine. That's wonderful. And uh, I'm not going to open the gift now. I will open it. Uh, looks like it might be a picture book. But uh, I will open it with my wife and my son later today. Thank you. Uh, this is from Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Heisenfeldberg writes, Frank Morano, I think you will be the most popular talk show host in America in 20 years. Well, I'm, what, why will it take 20 years? I mean, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> I feel like that should be the case in uh, in 20 weeks. I, I'm just kidding. That's uh, very, very, very kind of you, and uh, I appreciate that uh, very much. All right, uh, to the world of email we go. Charlotte writes, on the subject of time issues, which caused all that confusion with M.R. Gorga. Hi, Frank. When I worked evenings in a hospital, there was a doctor who was having trouble getting his patient's blood work drawn at midnight. So he decided to order the blood to be drawn at 11.59 p.m. It annoyed the nurses, but there were no more problems. Well, Charlotte, I mean, we're not on at 11.59 p.m., at least not on the East Coast. So that wouldn't do much for me. I am glad it worked out for that doctor, but doesn't do much for me. Uh, this is from Jeff, who's a great guy, regular emailer, very very generous guy. He sent me this cool Star Trek communicator as well and, and some nice books. Subject, just a quick comment. Frank, I usually listen via podcast, and I'm currently near the end of today's show, which is, I guess, yesterday's show. This is why I mostly email from work. I just realized, he just realized this, I just realized how much I enjoy the interaction with you and Matt. Wow. Wow. I encourage you to involve Matt in more conversations in the future. It's the next best thing to you and Al when you two used to host while Joe was away. Matt compliments you perfectly on air. Well, that's very nice of you, Jeff. As far as using Matt more, Matt is one of those folks where less might be more, right? Matt is a little bit like salt on a steak. You put a little bit of salt on, it adds a little bit of flavor. It helps bring the steak out. You put too much of that salt on that steak, the steak is ruined. So you got to just trust me on this. I know exactly the right amount of Matt Blaze to press. And if you doubt me, you will soon get to hear the three Comancheros do their alternative side of Midnight podcast. Uh, and you will hear that I'm right about this when, when Matt is unfettered and making editorial decisions. Uh, you want to add anything, Matt Blaze? You have a fan, at least one. E, this will be in the podcast. I'm sure it will. For sure. Yep. I am sure it will. All right. And, uh, and the big losers in that scenario are... Uh, Kenneth and Alex Barnard, who apparently no one wants to hear. Nobody wrote about them. Uh, Anna <laughs> writes, hello, Frank. Um, thank you very much for sending links in regard to remembering Bernard McGurk. It was always uh, a great, great entertainment listening to the Bernie and Sid show. Bernard, like you, was quite the gentleman so rare. I was fascinated to learn that Bernard gave you a reading list of favorite books would you be will would you be willing to consider sharing this list? Did he list and then she lists a whole bunch of things? Um, well, you know, here's what happened. Um, when people suggest books for me to read, I don't write down wh- uh, who recommended it. I just write down that I want to get this book. 
or that book. So I can't tell you the the books that uh, that Bernie recommended. Believe me, I wish that I did make note of that. I would have loved to have done that. But there's one book that um, that he did recommend, American Scoundrel, by Thomas Kingsley. Um, I, I did have that in my notes, and um, we we did text about this. I did order this book. It's about the life of the notorious Civil War general, Dan Sickles. It's a book by Thomas Keenley. Um, so he wrote, uh, he recommended that book uh, to me. That's one. And another one was, yeah, those were, those were, uh, those were some of the ones that he, th- that's the most recent one that he wrote to me. I'm sorry I don't have a more exhaustive list, but American Scoundrel. I haven't read it yet. So, uh, Geraldine in New Jersey writes, Hi, Frank. I was excited to hear that you were going to interview John Gambling. This family's morning started with John B., then John A. for many years. Then I would move on to Martha Dean, Dorothy and Dick, eventually Joan Hanbird, etc., etc., in the words of Alphonse D'Amato. Some days they were the only adult voices I heard. As usual, it was interesting to hear his take on important issues. And as usual, your questions were perfection, which is why I think that Twitter user Heidenfield says in 20 years I will be the most popular talk show host in America. Who knows what form radio will be in by then. There'll be one guy with a radio by then. It'll be my son Carmine. It'll be the one guy still has a radio. However, I was disappointed to hear that he has not changed his mind about global warming. After all the flooding, heat, and fires the world has experienced in recent years, I cannot believe that anyone can still deny that global warming exists. I look forward to your program every night. You know, thank you, Jerry. You know, it's one of those things. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask John about that. Because he's in Florida where a lot of this flooding goes on. And I was curious to see if that changed his tune at all. But, uh, but it did not. All right. Uh, Sarah emails. Hey, Frank. This is on the subject of the Amazon monopoly. Tell Rachel that to avoid paying return shipping fees or bringing it to an Amazon drop-off point 200 miles away, she should choose a different return reason, season, a different return reason. Some of them generate free return shipping labels. Hint, choose the one that says there's something wrong with the product. Okay. Okay, that's, uh, that's good advice. Good advice. That, that, that does work, by the way. It does work, huh? Yes. What if there's nothing wrong with the product? Doesn't matter. They don't right. know. Okay. Jacqueline writes, uh, my highest compliment to you and one I can offer to few others is that you are never boring. Even if a topic is not in my wheelhouse, I keep listening to enjoy your syntax, vocabulary, and enthusiasm for the subject. Thank you. After suffering through a dinner party where we felt serious conversation circling the drain, a friend and I came up with a list that can stop boredom in its tracks and get things back on an interesting course. It may be helpful to you someday. And uh, it is an interesting list, and I've seen some of these questions before, and maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll share some of them with uh, the listeners in the future. But uh, that's a very nice compliment, Jacqueline. I appreciate that. Julia writes, um, Hi, Frank. Listening to your show as always, and heard you mention that you used to like the Lux Radio Theater. Yes, I do. And um, she goes on to say, in the event you're not aware, you can listen to Radio Lux Theater on Alexa. Just ask Alexa to open Radio Lux Theater. Enjoy. 
Yours is the best radio show on the air today. Well, that is awfully nice. And you know, you know what's happened because I'm not using my uh, normal. Um, oh wait, no, no, okay. Uh, I'm not using my normal uh, computer. I'm trying to figure out the internet situation here, and I have to keep renewing the internet every hour or so. So I, I lost the internet for a second. But let me read you this email from. Let's see here. Um, okay. Uh, this is from Bunny. Bunny writes, uh, This morning I was so pleased to hear you say something that I've been doing for years. I do not believe in parties and am not registered. I have voted left, right, and sometimes do not vote. I refuse to hold my nose and vote. I have never understood why, no matter how incompetent the politician is, people will vote because it is their party. Unfortunately, because I am not registered, I lose my right to vote on primary day. Years ago, I contacted my congressman about it, and his letter said there could be fraud. Like, there never is fraud, and it gets worse. P.S., it was so nice to hear you read my name as one of the letters you received. Thank you, Bunny. Yeah, I, I, um, look, I'm all for, you know, what works in Albuquerque may not work in New York City, but maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. Because there are a bunch of uh, there are a bunch of issues related to this going on right now. All right, um, let's see here. Uh, let me let me end with with this one. Well, you know, I, so much of the email that I've gotten in the last couple of uh, weeks happens to focus on uh, all the people trying to offer helpful computer advice. I'll keep you posted on that, but uh, at this point, we're still we're still working on a solution there. We'll see. I'll keep you posted. And so far, I think I'm just going to have to break down and get a new computer, and then hopefully they can at least rescue a lot of the data that's uh, that's on there. So we'll see where that goes. I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, a lot of people um, unhappy with the the um, music selection on this show. I got a bunch of emails about music. You know what? The amount of time and attention that people spend worrying about the bumper music on this show is just staggering. I absolutely cannot understand it. That's maybe 40 seconds before each segment. If you're that bothered or by the music, the best thing that I could say to you is just chill out. Chill out. Um, you know... If that's all they're complaining about yeah. on this show, we're ahead. I, I would agree. I would agree. All right. Uh, I'll do one more here. This is from, uh, I want to pick someone someone good here. Um, hey, this is from Ellen. The Moranos and Money. Because she's she's a very loyal listener. She's uh, a, a one of our most loyal listeners and one of our most thorough. Hi, Frank. I have a question about how you and Rachel handle money in your marriage. I'm always surprised when you say that one of you needs to borrow money from the other one. Most couples I know just pool all their money and they use it as needed. However, you and Rachel obviously have a different arrangement. Can you explain what you two do? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that different. I mean, I, I um, basically, I have my own checking account 
we do have a communal checking account that we use for certain things. And she has her checking account, and uh, she generally will handle all the bills because she's more organized than I am and better at budgeting. And she'll just tell me what I need to what I need to pay. I actually prefer it this way because I spend every dollar that's that that is in my paycheck. When my paycheck comes, I go um, to uh, the mortgage. I go to childcare. I go to utilities whatever other bills I have to pay, mobile phone bills, and then I use the rest to pay credit card bills. So I spend every dollar of it. And then if there's anything left, you know, um, uh, you know, we'll use it maybe to put in for savings or something. But I'm, if, I wouldn't want to do that if Rachel and I were pooling our money. So, the, yeah, that's as, uh, that's as simple as I can make it. All right. Uh, I think that probably about uh, exhausts our supply of letters. If you ever want to send us snail mail... I love getting snail mail. You can send it to P.O. Box 1777. Send it to my attention, though. Uh, New York, uh, Frank Morano. Attention, Frank Morano. And the, um, let me get you the zip code. The zip code is in New York, New York. Um, well, I, I have to get back to you on that. But it's P.O. Box 1777. Uh, yeah, New York, New York, and 10163. Simple as that. 10163. All right. Um, if you did not get your letter read today, perhaps it will be read on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you uh, one of the reasons I let this Hall and Oates song play a little bit uh, is not only because I want to irritate the people that were unhappy with its selection, because so much of the content that's on, that is generated on the show is done out of spite for someone, right? But um, meaning not one specific person, but whoever. But also, um, I you know you heard Curtis mention there that um, I have 
ADHD. And it's funny, my last serious girlfriend, she always believed that I was on the autism spectrum. I never believed that. Um, But Rachel has said that she believes that I suffer from adult ADHD. And, you know, I've never really gotten examined by a professional for either of these things because I'm not sure anything would really change in my life. But I have gone online to do some questionnaires about, you know, what characteristics you have in both of those, adult ADHD and the adult autism spectrum disorder. And I'm always just underneath. I'm always kind of right on the border of both. And sometimes the characteristics are very similar. One of the things that I do have, and this might surprise you, is... I have a lot of compulsions. I wouldn't say that I have full-blown obsessive-compulsive disorder, but I do get there are certain things that I find quite triggering. One of them is when there is one or two unread emails. I have spent a good portion of the last two days just going through my emails. And yet my Gmail, which is what we use for our work email, my Gmail a minute ago, I was at the top of my inbox and it still showed that I had one unread email. This was driving me crazy. So I start going, you know, it says it's displaying one of 50. All right, let me see the next 50, the next 50, the next 50. I can't find this unread email. Can't find it. And it's in my primary inbox. It's not in promotions or social. I can't find it. And I'm just looking and looking and looking. And then I, this happens far too often. I always have to go and look up how to mark an email as read. It doesn't give you an option of just having the unread email come up because then it brings up the stuff that's in your other folders. So I don't know what this email was, but I was able to mark all my emails unread. So while that song was playing... I was waiting to see if that process would work, if it would make it so that all my emails were read. So now they're all marked red, and now I can work on, I'm going to work on this during the top of the hour news, tackling some of the SMS text messages that uh, I am uh, behind on. Well, one last email that I'll share. Subject, Frank, don't let Matt choose the music. Mostly too loud for overnights. Dear Frank. As for the music, at least play softer, quieter music. Don't be dictated to by Matt to play his preferred genre. Generally very loud, disturbing, and causing listeners to turn you off rather than go on disturbing members of their family and next-door neighbors. Sincerely, uh, Jay Lawrence and family. All right, well, I appreciate that, Jay Lawrence. Um, We have here a radio deep state. So I... You know, I'm kind of slave to whatever Matt wants to do. He controls the buttons. There you have it. Uh, By the way, I want to again thank one of our great listeners from France for dropping off all of these uh, French biscuits that she brought. I had said, I guess, that her name was Naomi uh, Petkis. Apparently, the proper pronunciation of her name is Noemi Petkis. Uh, So she apparently went to this very special French bakery, a particularly high-end French bakery for those biscuits. 
And I'm not the least bit surprised because they were absolutely delicious. So thank you to no- Noemi for that. And uh, I'm sorry for calling you Naomi. But, um, you know, whatever. This, at least That's not one of the things that I'm intentionally mispronouncing, at least. I, I'll give you that. All right. Uh, also, I've decided that sometime soon, maybe in the in the next 90 days, I am going to arrange a screening, maybe at my residence, but maybe somewhere else, for five or six people who have never seen The Godfather. Because we have Matt Blaze here, who's never seen The Godfather. Marlena Shiva, who comes on this show, who's never seen The Godfather. My favorite second cousin, Andrea, has never seen The Godfather. Uh, my friend, Danielle, who gave her kidney away very generously, she has never seen The Godfather. So we've got to figure something out here. I can't continue surrounding myself with all these people that have never seen The Godfather. So we're going to arrange a maybe a Saturday, and attendance at this will be will be mandatory uh, because I, this is just it's too much. It's too much. So we'll see. Um, we'll see how that goes. Oh, you'll come to that, right? That Godfather screening? No. Why? Why wouldn't you come? I guess I'll come. All right. I'll probably you. see it before that. I mean, All right. Because because since yesterday, I'm thinking it's kind of embarrassing that I've never seen the Godfather. Yes. To be honest. Yes. How exactly. can I call myself a movie guy? Right. If I've never seen the Godfather. Right. So I'm like, I, I got to watch this. You and do. I have it. So you do. All right, um, coming up in just a minute, hey, uh, the kids ain't all right. There is some big problems with children in this country. If you think you know the reason why, eh, chances are you're right. I'll tell you for sure in a minute. And the mentally ill are having a very tough time in Maryland. I'll tell you about that. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. The kids ain't all right. And what's even more disturbing is because they ain't all right, they're using words like ain't, which they, ain't is in the dictionary, but eh, a lot of the hoity-toity, they don't like using the word ain't. I don't really love using the word ain't, but um, sometimes you have to. All right, uh, some disturbing news. The what we're seeing in terms of education numbers is abysmal. There have been historic setbacks for children. The nation's report card shows new evidence of COVID's devastating impact on U.S. children's education. Fourth and eighth graders fell behind in reading 
and had the largest ever decline in math. Largest ever. This is according to a national education assessment uh, showing the devastating effect of uh, COVID-19 pandemic on America's children. And specifically, it's not just the COVID-19 pandemic. What it was was the lockdowns surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll tell you, we've done scores of interviews on this subject with experts, with reporters, with educators, with psychologists. And time and again, what do we hear? I think the only conclusion that you can draw is that these lockdowns were a tremendous mistake. And whenever the next uh, epidemic comes, whether it's a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, or 100 years from now, we need to learn from our mistake here. There is a a generation of children, well, not a generation, there is two or three years of students that are going to be behind for the rest of their academic career in all likelihood. All because we thought it was an a good idea to close schools for a virus that almost no children were dying from. These alarming findings are in the National Assessment of Educational Progress, reading and math exams, which we call the nation's report card. They were conducted by the National Center for Education Statistics. This is a branch of the Education Department. The U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, told CNN, quote, if this is not a wake-up call for us to double down our efforts and improve education, even before it was, even before the pandemic, then I don't know what will. He's right. He's right. He's called on schools to ensure they're using funding from the COVID relief package passed in 2021 to boost student scores. Cardona suggested widespread teacher shortages are a symptom of decades of underinvestment in schools. I, uh, I I could buy that, but this COVID lockdown, this was a travesty. And I think the um, if Ron DeSantis, I don't want to make this political because it really shouldn't be, but if Ron DeSantis moves forward with a presidential run, I think the more data that comes out that shows these lockdowns being a mistake, I think the better it looks for people like Ron DeSantis that rushed, not not rushed, but they moved to reopen their states as quickly as possible. And I think the worse it looks for people like Gavin Newsom, who kept their schools closed. And, you know, it's funny. This is one of the few things, and uh, had Bill de Blasio kept his word to me and come on this show, I would have asked him about this. This is one of the few areas where Donald Trump and Bill de Blasio were in agreement. They were both pushing to reopen schools. And uh, I think clearly what we're seeing in these test scores is they were right. So preliminary test scores around the country confirm what a lot of parents already knew to be true. The longer many students studied remotely, the less they learned. Some educators and parents are questioning decisions in cities from Boston to Chicago to Los Angeles to remain online long after clear evidence emerged that schools were not COVID super spreaders and months after life-saving adult vaccines became available. 
there are all sorts of fears about the future of these students who don't catch up. They run the risk of never learning to read, which is a precursor to dropping out of school. They might never master simple algebra. This pandemic decline in college attendance might even accelerate. They're saying, and I'm not going to go this far, they're saying this could cripple the U.S. economy. Um, In a sign of how inflammatory the debate has become, there's all sorts of disagreement among educators, school leaders, and parents, even about how to label the problems created by online school. The term learning loss has become a lightning rod. Some fear the term might brand struggling students or cast blame on teachers, and they say it overlooks the need to save lives during a pandemic. Please. Please. Oh, is this really where we are? Children can't read. Children can't add. Children have no idea what's going on. And we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs, arguing about whether it's okay to use the term learning loss. Give me a break. This is crazy. 800-848-9222. Whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it learning loss or the educational condition formerly known as learning loss. Why don't we go with that? Because that sounds as bureaucratic and as politically correct as we can come up with. The educational condition formerly known as learning loss is hurting a lot of students. The casualties of Zoom school or remote learning are real. The scale of the problem and the challenges in addressing it were apparent in Associated Press interviews with nearly 50 school leaders, teachers, parents, and health officials who uh, health officials who struggled to agree on a way forward. Some public health officials and educators warned against second-guessing the school closures for a virus that killed over a million people. Well, let me be the let me be the first to second-guess. Hey, where is my bell? Can they move my bell? I I had a bell in here, like a hotel bell. Did anyone see it? It was being put on this table for a while. My bell is now missing. Can we uh I'm putting out an all-points bulletin for my bell. If anyone has seen my bell, please uh Look for it or return it to me. See, we have a locker, but I can't fit all my stuff in there. All right. Can we um, can we keep an eye out for this bell, please? Have you guys seen it? You haven't seen it? No. See, I don't understand. It was in here. It was on this table. And where did it go? Uh, back to the hotel. Well, it's, it's very clever. Very clever. You know, I, I buy all this stuff for the show in, you know, to be able to use it, and then it just disappears. I just don't understand. I don't understand. So uh, I'm gonna, we'll look for my bell, and hopefully we can find it. If not, I'll have to order another one. 800-848-9222. That is frustrating. Well, anyway, that did distract me a little bit. But I am raising my hand. I am second-guessing the decision for remote learning. Happily second-guessing it. And I'll second-guess it and third-guess it and fourth-guess it. Now... I also find this report somewhat, not somewhat, significantly disturbing. Maryland children and youth continue to experience mental health challenges. Irene Diane is excited for her senior year at Bowie High School, serving as president of the school student government organization, and she has future aspirations to attend college. But the 17-year-old 
Prince George's County resident says mental health remains a challenge among her peers. One way to eliminate it, Maryland lawmakers should approve a statewide policy that that mirrors legislation introduced last year on the federal level that diverts federal money for police and schools and uses it to hire more school counselors and pay for other student services. This is what the student said. Disciplining students for things that aren't violent and implementing detentions and suspensions, that's taking students out of the classroom. It's a disservice to take away their education. That affects a person's mental health, especially, and this is the quote from the student, especially black and brown students, and creates the school-to-prison pipeline. Regardless of your opinion of that proposal, mental health has become a major impediment in the nation and in Maryland to improving a child's life, which the Annie Casey Foundation details in its latest 2022 Kids Count data book that assesses children's well-being nationwide and provides a state-by-state breakdown of services and performance. And this edition focused on mental health and how the COVID pandemic affected children and families. The pandemic caused a delay in some data collection from the U.S. Department of Education. For instance, uh, fourth grade reading and eighth grade math are based on 2019 data and high school graduation information from the 2019 to 2020 school year didn't come in time to publish in the data book. Uh, And now I gave you that information nationally. But during that same time frame, so nationally, the number of children ages 3 to 17 who experienced anxiety or depression increased by 25%. And during that same time, Maryland ranked 13th in the nation with a 36% increase of children ages 3 to 17 with anxiety or depression either reported to or diagnosed by a doctor. Maryland ranked 19th in the nation for overall child well-being. So um, in addition to children not being able to add or read, they're anxious and depressed. There are problems all around here. And I think a good portion of it stems from, I mean, it's not as if, American school children were leading the world in any academic category before the pandemic. But a lot of this stems from these lockdowns. And I really hope we learn the lesson for the next one. 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning, Frank. Frank, you got to keep your gas. You got to keep your foot on the gas here. They, the teachers union. At the same time as a government who will take anything shiny and new, they seem to collide at the same time and absolutely are destroying these children. Teachers don't want to go back to school. They love the thought of working remote. The unions love the idea of working remote. It takes their members out of sometimes dangerous situations. It takes them out of you know, an element that's underfunded where they work. And then you get a government who will say, oh, wait a minute, I'll just jump on anything shiny and new. Yeah, remote learning, it's the best. 
And by the time the damage is done and the COVID money is gone, they're just going to stand there and say, oh, well, you know, we didn't know any better. What do you want us to do about it? Well, you know, in my experience, and thanks for the call, JR, in my experience, the teachers that I know, they weren't happy with remote learning. I mean, some of them may have been uh, happy with it at first, especially when there were concerns about, uh, you know, the COVID spread. But the teachers that I know, they were just as frustrated as the parents and the students. So I don't think maybe there's some union officials, and certainly that was the case in New York, and they gave de Blasio a hard time when de Blasio wanted to reopen schools. And I imagine it was true in Boston and Chicago as well. But on a rank-and-file basis, and I know a lot of teachers, they were not happy with remote learning at all. They found this a tremendous hindrance to being able to do their job. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, I like to say with all the madness going on, the fundamentals, they keep saying uh, all, all the kids come home and they find the parents arguing perhaps and over money. The landlord wants more rent. They say, well, we can't afford to live here anymore. But then they turn around to their kid and say, come on, read your history book or Read your, uh, do your mathematical uh, problems, you know, and they go on constantly arguing. It, it's a very bad situation that we've got going on, at least stable. They have to come down to earth, uh, politicians, landlords, everybody else, and say, look, we need fundamentals first. Uh, we have to have a, a solid place to live. We have to have uh, a cohesive neighborhood like we used, like they used to be. We got to get back to basics. It's well, just yeah, wacky. I mean, Tom, I uh, I certainly agree with that, and I think having children in school in person is one of those basics. Thank you for the call, Tom. I think uh, that is the as basic as it gets, personally. All right, we're going to go live to Mexico in just a few minutes. We're going to meet a woman who's a retiree who moved down to Mexico with her husband. And since then, she has been at war with essentially Mexican drug cartels and the Mexican police. It's fascinating, fascinating story that we will explore straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. some trouble for um, performing in the in the in the Hamptons, right? 
uh, a year or two ago. I remember that was a big story. Hey, uh, we're trying to get a hold of uh, Janet Sanders. She is not answering her phone. Hopefully that is uh, not one of those situations. Well, we're, we're a few minutes early, though. So maybe she set her alarm for, you know, the precise time of the interview. And uh, I don't know that we called her 15 or 20 minutes in advance uh, to make sure that she was available, which is always a good thing for any of you aspiring radio producers at home. It's always a good thing to do. Call the guests 10, 15 minutes. Man, just want to make sure you're ready, make sure you're at a landline. And also. So um, in terms of the weekend that we just experienced at the Murano household, obviously very difficult for both Carmine and me having the lady of the house away for the weekend. But Rachel, who was out on Long Island, she sent, she had a full page worth of instructions of things that I needed to do for the household. 80, literally 80 to 90% of this was cat related about food for the cats, uh, medication for the cats and now there's three separate medications that need to be given to these cats there's melchizedek's insulin there's bathsheba's lymphoma medication there's bathsheba's blood pressure medication and it is tough getting these cats to take all these medications i mean the insulin you got to give twice a day Luckily, the lymphoma medication and the blood pressure medication, that's only once a day. But then in addition to a printed out instruction manual of how to handle the cats and so forth, there was also an email on this front. So um, there was then an addendum to the email about instructions for putting out food for the outdoor cat that comes and hangs out by our house. There's an outdoor cat which my wife is plotting to trap to get fixed. But this cat is smart, and he won't go in the trap and get trapped. So my wife is keeping the trap out there every day, every day, but without the closing mechanism so that the cat gets used to the trap. So she puts food in this cat in this trap every day, but doesn't have the trap closed. So her thinking is a couple more weeks of this cat getting in the habit because she was able to trap one cat and get that cat fixed, but um, she has not she was not able to trap this other cat. This cat is too smart. So she's trying to she's engaged in this battle of wits with this cat where she feeds him and uh, then she hopes that he gets used to the um, gets used to the uh, trap itself. So we'll see where that goes. But I will tell you this: um, I told you about how my uncle Steve is uh, marrying this woman who he barely knows, and she claims that she's allergic to cats. And so he asked us to take one of his three cats the one that he's most attracted to, uh, most uh, attached to. So we had been reluctant to do this because we have our hands full with three cats plus this outdoor cat. After 
taking care of these cats for a weekend, and I didn't even have to give Beth Sheba her chemo, her chemo medication. That's a, a pill, which apparently is only twice a week, and it's not on the weekend. I don't think we can handle another another cat, personally. So I am leaning towards um, saying no. And Rachel is not at all, you know, inclined to take this cat. So we'll see where that goes. Um, my uncle keeps asking me about it, and I feel bad. But, you know, it's still, we only have so much bandwidth here. Uh, so... We'll see where that goes. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, any of the subjects that we are talking about. That's 800-848-9222. You know, I am looking forward to seeing this debate, well, sort of, seeing this debate tonight between Governor Kathy Hochul and the one debate that she's agreed to with Lee Zeldin, the Republican running against her. But here's what happened, right? So I agreed to be honored by the National Psoriasis Foundation for this dinner that they have coming up in April. So two or three weeks ago, they asked me, can we take you to dinner, right, and go over the details? And, and you know, I mean, you know how this works. I mean, probably a lot of you have been involved with stuff like this for certain charities, where essentially they honor you, but then they expect you to sell a table or at least give them the contact information for all the people that you know so that they can beg everyone that you know for money. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the most pleasant situation, to be honest. But at the very least, I figure these are nice people. We'll have a free, uh, get a free dinner out of it. But two or three weeks ago, we agreed to, because they're from out of town and they're in New York for a limited time, we agreed to tonight as the day of the dinner. Now, all of a sudden, when tonight comes, I am cursing past Frank. How could past Frank have agreed to this? Yada, yada, yada. And that's the case today because I don't really feel like coming in three hours earlier than usual to have dinner with these people who are just interested in my contact list. I prefer to have dinner home, spend time with my wife, my son. But so be it. But tonight with the debate... It means I'm not going to be able to watch the debate. The debate is at 7 p.m. Eastern, and my dinner is going to be at 8 in Midtown. So that means I'm going to miss this debate driving in, not carried on the radio. So I'm going to have to listen on the Spectrum app um, and hook it into my Bluetooth. I got to say, I just, I am, it, this is one of those dinners, nothing against the people that I'm supposed to dine with, but um, I am really hoping that they cancel. I mean, I can't imagine why they would, but that's where I am. 800-848-9222. Busy week. A lot going on uh, this week. So uh, that's that's one thing. I'll tell you how it works out uh, tomorrow when I talk to you. Um, Also, if you want to be a part of the discussion about the things that we cover on the show, join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio. Fans and haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio. Fans and haters. Uh, Tommy Barlotta, great guy, great listener, great friend. Helped me move, by the way, into my last apartment. Actually, I think he might have helped me move twice. But um, maybe just once. I don't know. Tommy writes, am I the only one who wants to go for a few drinks with Tom from the Bronx? I think he would make a great wingman. You know, I bet you Tom from the Bronx would be fun to hang out with 
in small doses. I could see a whole evening of Tom from the Bronx being a little taxing. But one drink or one cup of coffee, I think uh, I think that could be pretty enjoyable, right? Don't you? So I don't know. All right. Um, we Let's check in over at our busy phones. All right. Well, that's good. We don't want uh, Kenneth overtaxed anyway. You know, he, he's got a lot going on. As you know, the life of an aspiring model, very challenging. So uh, we don't need him being bothered with answering phones or anything like that. Come on, hey, Kenny. We are going to talk with uh, Jen Kearns next hour. Uh, Jen Kearns is a friend of mine. She's a terrific political consultant. She's worked in uh, California, all over the country, really. And she's been a, a debate, a, a, a writer for some of the presidential debates. She's very accomplished. She's got a new book out all about the new war on women, which she says is the new war on women. We'll get into uh, we'll get into that now. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of other stories that we're that we're covering, there was one story that I found very interesting. Uh, I am a fan, as you know, of Michael Smirkanish, right? And um, there is a there was something called the unconvention, and I was sorry that I didn't get to go to this because this is right up my alley. They had a lot of interesting panels and uh, it was, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm into. But as part of the unconvention, Smirkanish was talking about something I agree with and something I've said many times on this program, which is that cable news is causing polarization. Cable news is not bringing the country together. It's making matters worse, quite frankly. This is a little what uh, Smirkanish said at the unconvention in Philadelphia. I delivered on my radio program today an hour-long address. Kind oh, of the, so it was short for you. <laughs> the, world, the world according to me. It was my explanation of how we got into this polarized ditch, how we get out. And the short version is that I enumerated a number of causes, but at the top of my list is the media, sounding strange from someone who earns his keep behind a microphone. But I think among many factors, gerrymandering, self-sorting, lack of campaign finance reform, it's the polarized media and that there's causation, not correlation, between the two. I completely agree with that. I've said that ad infinitum on this program. But here was what was interesting is he actually did go about in the and I think the person he was talking to there might have been um, Jeff Zucker. But the person he's talking to, Michael actually lays out a solution to what he thinks could be part of the problem here. Why not say, hey, this is the path. We're not going to be MSNBC. We're not going to be Fox. We are going to go after independent thinkers. And I don't just mean me on Saturday, right? I mean, we're going to build a whole network around that principle. And so he proposed the idea of creating a whole network of genuine independence. Now, supposedly, under the new leadership at CNN, the new ownership and the new, um, you know, the new guy in charge there, Chris Licht, whose birthday it was yesterday, actually. Happy birthday, Chris Licht. They're supposedly already moving in that direction. News Nation 
which has sort of struggled to get off the ground. This has been their sort of mantra. They're not left. They're not right. They just give you the news as it is, right? Bring you both sides. And so far, people have not flocked. And even people that they've signed that have been more high profile, like Chris Cuomo, Chris Cuomo has sort of been forced to adapt to the News Nation model of doing things. At least he pretends that he's adapting to that News Nation model of doing things. But the interesting thing is um, we haven't seen News Nation exactly tear up the charts in terms of ratings. So maybe the kind of independent network that Michael Smirconish is talking about there, maybe that's a pipe dream for independents like Michael and me. I don't know about you, but uh, I would love to see so a program like Smirconish on every day rather than just one hour a week on Saturdays. And I think that a lot of people in the country would too. But then how then do you explain the lack of liftoff for a network like News Nation? And where does CNN go from here? Do you think CNN is going to go in that sort of a independent direction? Uh, feel free to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 9222 if you want to comment. Uh, and then uh, you can also join our Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. We are preparing another review from our music analyst, Gina, comparing the latest original song from Alex Barnard and the latest original song from uh, Frank Diaz. So um, a lot of people responded to Gina's decision to award the last round in the battle of the bands to Alex Barnard. So she's going to have another opportunity to weigh two other songs, two new songs here. So we'll see where that goes. But it'll certainly be very interesting. You can also email me, uh, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. I did order a whole bunch of pens. I ordered 100 gel pens, the same kind my accountant uses, and these are great pens, the ones that he has. I'm always afraid to take it with me from work, from home, because I don't want it left behind here. And I see what happens when I leave a bell behind. It gets pilfered. So I don't want the same thing to happen, the same fate to befall one of these nice gel pens. Uh, But I did order a bunch emblazoned with our show's name and I think my Twitter handle. So maybe we'll start giving those away from uh, from time to time. I, I'll figure I get a hundred, and then you know, once those I give all those away, then we can move on and and see about if there needs to be more that's that's ordered. Um, someone on the uh, Facebook group suggests there should be the Sid and Noemi Petkus show. I don't know that that would work. Here's why: uh, Naomi Noemi Petkus. She clearly has access to these delectable sweets. Sid is in great shape, but he has a sweet tooth, right? So he works out like a madman, but if he has access to these French gourmet biscuits every single day, I think that that might put a a little bit of a strain in his workout routine, either, you know, cause him to... Work at, have to work out harder to avoid putting on any sort of body fat because of the consumption of French biscuits, or maybe, you know, he would work out just as hard as he does now, but he would put on weight 
from the constant consumption of these French biscuits. And I could see that leading to a long-term resentment between Sid and Noemi. And I don't think that would uh, that would inure to anyone's benefit, personally. So uh, I, don't, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. That was Michael who made that su- suggestion. 800-848-9222. Bill is in Levittown. Hello, Bill. Hey, Frank. This is uh, – thanks so much, uh, Frank. You're great. Thank you. Hey, Frank, I, I have calls into the local uh, Republican uh, in Nassau County in Suffolk. I'm looking for what I could do to help Lee Zeldin get elected, you know, volunteer some of my time. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of time, but I want to give what I can as we come down the home stretch. Do you think it's effective if we were to get like 10,000 of those Lee Zeldin uh, signs? And I, and I think it's great. Just very simple. You don't even need all the issues. It just says save our state because that's what I think we need. Um, do you think that's effective if, if I got some folks and we went out to areas and try to, you know, that, that maybe they'd see it and that would help? Or really it's just uh, that's not that useful. Like what, what do you think would be effective for me to help as we go down the Well, you know, I would – look, I think um, I would contact the campaign. And this would go for any advice uh, for any candidate, anybody who's looking to support. And I'll speak to Zeldin specifically. But I would contact the campaign and say you're eager to help and you're eager to – Pitch in however you can. How um, how would you like me to help? That's number one. Right. Uh, but in the case of Zeldin, it's interesting because Zeldin has all the momentum going in this race right now. We'll see what happens in the debate tonight. But clearly, things are moving in his direction. So he needs um, two things to happen. One, he needs every right-leaning voter in this state to realize this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity and that this race is competitive and can be won by a Republican. So it's how do you um, convey the message to the kind of Republican-leaning voter that only votes once every four years, that only votes in a presidential election, that the Republicans can actually pull a Glenn Youngkin here and and actually win this. And I don't know the answer to that, but I think a lot of it is word of mouth, social media, and so forth – And convincing people that this race is winnable for the Republicans. But um, if Lee Zeldin's going to win this, he needs to do three things. One, he needs to win upstate big. Two, which he appears to be doing. Two, he needs to get in excess of 30 percent of the vote in New York City. And amazingly, and keep in mind, Mr. New York City, Curtis Lewa, couldn't even get 30 percent of the vote in New York City. But amazingly, Zeldin seems to be doing that in a lot of polls. But the other thing he needs to do is run up the score in Long Island in a big way. So what I would do if I were the Zeldin campaign, and look, they don't need to take advice from me because clearly whatever they're doing is working. They, they, um, Frank, they do because but, I'm telling you, these folks, they're, they're not out there. They well, I, I mean, that's advice. one of my complaints with the Zeldin campaign. But what I would do if I were them is in Staten Island, Long Island, and even the Bronx and um, certainly Queens, is you need to be hammering the point that a vote for Lee Zeldin is a vote against congestion pricing. There are so many folks in Long Island and Queens that um, drive into Manhattan for work or for, um, you know, just for leisure, and I don't know that they fully comprehend that they're going to be paying a lot of money just for the privilege of driving into Midtown Manhattan every day. And I think it, I think Lee Zeldin's done a great job emphasizing the crime issue 
and how he can, he's sort of the the solution on on crime. We could talk about how you know how practical his solutions are, but it doesn't matter for political purposes. He's getting that message out there. I don't know that he's been able to convey that same message on congestion pricing. Now, Kathy Hochul. She is running this whole campaign as if it was six months ago. So we'll see what happens in this debate today. But if I were Zeldin and Zeldin's campaign, especially on Long Island, I would be – every other word out of my mouth would be congestion pricing. You got crime, hey, hey, Frank, you got two, congestion two, pricing. Two quick yeah. Uh, sure. I'm sorry, Frank. Two quick things, if I may. If I may? Sure. As a follow-up, Frank? Yeah. yeah. That, first of all, that was fantastic. I took notes. I'm doing everything you said. Um one is, did you hear about the guy? I just heard it late last night or whatever that got um, the hell beat out of him because he was going door to door trying to help get the vote out. I forget in what state. Uh, you know, eyes all, eyes all whacked, uh, head, uh, you know, broken jaw. It, it just happened recently. Did you hear about that? I did hear about that. Yeah. I don't remember what state that was. Yeah. And, and you know, and I'm still going to do it. But you know what? I You know, that 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 we have to worry about things like this. You know, if I'm going to go into communities where, you know, you don't know people and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white guy going around and, uh, you know, maybe in some neighborhoods and, but we'll see that, you know, that, that, and there's no news about that, right? If this, if this, the shoe is on the other foot, you know, um, forget about it. The other thing is, you you know, about the corruption, uh, you know, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Detroit, Philly, New York city, um, uh, that's what worries me is the absolute corruption, whether it's stealing an election or whatever they do. So we got to get and I'm not I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm not. We got crooks all over the place, uh, you know, Republican and whatnot. Do you think the corruption uh, can can you know that that that's as uh, much an uphill battle as I see it, that they could, you know, whether it's teachers union, like you were just saying, no matter who it is, do you think they can. Uh, you know, fraudulently, you know, influence this uh, election results? Well, no, not in New York, uh, because oh, in, okay. in New York, and, and thanks for the call, Bill. In New York, the Board of Elections is controlled by both political parties, right? There are no ballots, and we can discuss whether that's a good system or it's a bad system, and I have a lot of problems with it. But there are no ballots that are opened, paper ballots or, you know, ballots that are cast on a machine, or affidavit ballots. There are no ballots that are opened or looked at or counted without both a Republican and a Democrat counting them together. So let's say your concern was Zeldin and the Zeldin election. You could not get Republican Board of Elections workers and deputy chiefs and chiefs in 62 counties or even even in five counties, pick the most Democratic counties in the state, to go along with mothballing their own candidate because the benefits to a party winning the governor's mansion is enormous. There are, they're enormous. There's patronage, there's jobs, there's money, there's prestige. And I can't see a significant amount of Republicans being willing to go along with screwing their own candidate. And that's what would have to happen in a state like New York. Other states I'm less familiar with, I can tell you what goes on in Atlantic County, New Jersey. It's it's a cesspool of corruption down there. We've covered a lot of that. We will again in the future. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I was going to talk about how the schools are affecting, uh, you know, the lockdowns. But uh, when you were talking about Zeldin, me and my wife were both uh, volunteering for his campaign. Uh, just over the last two weeks, I've been there putting lawn signs uh, together. My wife's been doing the phone calls to, you know, you know, to uh, talk to people. And one of his first questions that they're asking is about 
price, you know, congested. Great. Well, that's and, great. And um, like I said, um, I've been, I was there yesterday. I put 500 lawn signs together. Today I'm going there. Um, he's doing really, really, really good. But like my campaign manager says, we always got to pretend like he's 10 points behind and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And uh, he's a great guy. I've met him many times. And uh, also what people have to realize and what they're, they're trying to you know, convey to people is Kathy Hochul, she was right alongside with Cuomo when COVID was at its peak and all those elderly people. That's what women, you know, trying to explain that, you know, she's just a carbon copy of him. And if there was ever another lockdown again, and, you know, going into what you were talking about before, it affected the kids. Uh, my kids are behind. I mean, me and my wife kept up with them, Frank, the reading when they were home. But if they're not in class, they're not talking to their friends. I mean, you could see the diminish in their mental capacity. They're depressed. It's just a shame. It really is a shame what these kids went through. Oh, no. I mean, a shame is a shame is when your favorite baseball team loses. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy, and what makes it worse, and look, obviously hindsight is always twenty twenty. but what makes it even worse is that this was entirely preventable. It did not have to happen. There was no reason for these schools to be shut down for as long as they were. Your kids, you're talking about how they're behind. Imagine children in Boston and Chicago and L.A. where they kept the schools closed for another six months. Uh, I mean, it's really just, it, it's, it's abominable. Uh, Joe, thank you for the, the um, call. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Open lines. Open lines. We'll comment uh, you know, on anything you see fit. Uh, that's always the benefit of whenever a, a guest no-shows us is that we have a little bit of flexibility to go in any direction you like, and we'll do that straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Beautiful Spirit Bean. Uh, this actually is from the, the singer here, and I think the person that wrote this song is a gentleman by the name of Gary Korb, who's been on this show before, uh, talking about cigars. He is uh, with CigarInsider.com and uh, or CigarAdvisor.com. And lo and behold, he's also uh, quite an accomplished musician with this song, Beautiful Spirit Bean, which, um, unlike some of the other music that we've played on this show, 
you can actually make out the lyrics of what Gary Korb is saying there. And uh, I am not sure if, um, much like the uh, Stevie G and the uh, Tabernacle Choir and the Alex Bernard Band Lesbian Dance Theory, I'm not sure if this song is also available on iTunes or, as Andrew Cuomo would say, downloaded on Apple. So, uh, but look for it wherever you can. It's called Something Different is the band. And uh, the song is called Beautiful Spirit Being. All right. uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we are talking about. You know, it's funny. I always try to help out everybody, right? Whenever somebody asks me for help, whatever the help is, I do whatever I can for them. I mean, if I can help someone in 10 seconds or a minute or five minutes, I'm much more likely to do that than something that uh, will take me an hour or two to do. Uh, So an old friend of mine, a fellow that I used to work with, emailed me maybe two months ago, and he mentioned a potential legal issue that that he was going to be dealing with, and he asked me to refer him to an attorney in New York. And so I forwarded his email, to a whole bunch of attorneys that I knew that specialized in whatever. I forget what it was. I don't know if it was a uh, an employment law. I don't remember what it was. It was. It took me 30 seconds to do, all told. And so this fella, Alex, he wrote to me last week, and he said, look, I didn't end up needing one of those attorneys, but I really appreciate your help. M- meanwhile, I want you to understand, I, be- I did not do anything for this guy. Didn't do anything. And I want to send something to your house. Is this still your address? I said, yeah, that's my address, but you really don't have to send anything. I didn't do anything. And sure enough, yesterday, we get a package. And I open it up. And it's a a cheese board. Now, it's not just any cheese board. It is a New York Mets cheese board. Now, here's the thing with me. Because a lot of people know that I enjoy cheese, and because a cheese board is a very good kind of mid-level gift, a lot of people have sent us cheese boards. So Rachel says to me, we already have six cheese boards. And some are engraved with our name. Some have both their names on it. Some have all sorts of stuff. So so, um, I said, I don't know what to do with it. Maybe we can keep this one at my dad's because they do a lot of entertaining with, uh, with cheese. And... She said, well, but they're not going to put it out if it's got a Mets logo on it because they're Yankee fans over there. So I'm trying to figure out what to do with this because it's a really nice cheese board. And I want it to be used, and I appreciate this generous gift, but we have a cheese board glut at our house. And I'm not sure I'm not sure what to do here. So we'll see. But I appreciate the uh, the thought. From uh, Alex, a gentleman named Alex, who sent that gift, and we'll, I will, but no need to send gifts. I, again, Rachel had to. That was the only time she ever posted in the Facebook group is to please not send anything because our house is just overwhelmed with clutter. Um, and uh, I'm a pack rat, right? I collect all this stuff, and uh, she is the opposite. She throws all this stuff away. So please don't send anything. But um, it was very nice. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Um, you know what? I had to call in, and I'm in Myrtle Beach, no big deal, uh, for six months. And uh, 
Uh, I got to give a shout out to Joe from Aconcoma. Uh, we've been friends for about two years uh, since the uh, Frank Russo show, uh, whatever. Uh, I like cheese. This this Italian likes cheese. <laughs> and uh, I got to tell you something um, about Bernie, the conversations we had um, at the boardwalk Long Beach. Um, you know, we spoke many times, and uh, he even saw my father. He's gone six years, about seven years ago. He was sitting in his chair listening to uh, Transistor, and I introduced him to my mom who was walking. So uh, we had good conversations. And I'll tell you what, uh, I got a kick out of it with the emails. You know, uh, uh, Matt was getting complimented, but, but no words for Kenny. I'll give Kenny a shout-out. <laughs> uh, he went to Cortland. So did Dominic. And uh, so did, you know, Bernie's daughter and my son. Now, here's the thing. Is that uh, true? Uh, All of you guys went to Cortland? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's how I met Bernie and the conversation we had. And I can tell you this, uh, Frank. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to try to listen to that debate on my smartphone tonight from Myrtle Beach. And uh, I'll end it with this. i got to take a breath. <clears throat> uh, my mother's 90. And uh, Saturday morning, I get a call from my good sister on the West Coast. And mom, mom passed away. Um, so oh, sorry. I, I got a heavy heart. Well, thanks, Frank. And you know what? People out there listening, uh, I'm getting up there in age. You know, I'm 68. But I, I thank every day uh, that the parents I had and the kids that I have. My daughter's a teacher. I told you. And, uh, and you know what? We, we got to embrace and hold on to every day that your mom and your dad is around. <clears throat> and uh, we only go around once, people. So, you know, don't take anything for granted. Don't take anything for granted. Uh, on that note, Mike, hey, we're thinking of you, and uh, we're glad you're doing okay. appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, we're going to talk about some other people that passed away in just a minute. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Sign of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. As uh, that great philosopher and frequent guest on this show has said, um, death is something that is very common. We've all come from a long line of dead people, and I believe Malachi McCord even said on this program, he attributed the quote to Mark Twain, who was also very quotable, it's very possible. It's like Mark Twain said, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. Now, um, there seems to be a lot of death in the news. And on the one hand, it's, you know, depressing. And on the other hand, it provides uh, an opportunity for looking back at a life well-lived or at least a life that... Um, 
provided a great deal of attention or, or generated a great deal of attention. Let us begin with Leslie Jordan. This was really sad. Leslie Jordan, a beloved actor and social media star, dead at the age of 67. He was a comedian, an actor. I never watched Will and Grace, but I think he was best known for being on that program. And um, my the thing I knew him best from was his role as Bernard, Bernie, on Boston Legal. And basically, this was someone that uh, accidentally, he got into a, a, he was abused by his mother, and even as an older guy. He was middle-aged, and he was still bullied constantly by his mother, who he lived with. And he ends up, I don't want to spoil too much of the show for you, because those episodes that he's in are really wonderful. And his back and forth with Betty White is terrific. Great stuff. And his back and forth with James Spader is terrific. But um, he talks about how he killed his mother on Boston Legal. Could you first tell me how she came to be lying dead on the floor? I hit her on the head with a skillet. Ah. Cast iron. But it wasn't premeditated or planned. It was just one of those things. She was berating me like she does all the time. How I don't make enough money. How I'm weak all the time. The same litany of how I am a failure. It makes me so enraged. Sounds like an accidental skillet bopping so far. She kept on and on and I kept squeezing it tighter and tighter without even realizing it. And then... I swung, but I swear, Mr. Shore, I never decided to. Suddenly, my arm was in motion. Bam, I hit her, and she went down. What do I do? I certainly can't advise you to conceal evidence in any way, but I'm afraid you're going to have to call the police, Mr. Farian, and if you don't, I'll have to. But you're my lawyer. I understand. What am I going to tell them? Uh, Oh. I thought you said she was dead. She is. I checked her pulse. Now, this is someone that killed his mother, yet the character on that show is just so incredibly likable. And I don't know that anybody would have been able to pull that off but for Leslie Jordan. Leslie Jordan was one of those uh, star, one is one of those actors and one of those comics that even if you didn't know his name, you knew who he was. You would say, oh, that's the guy from blank. That's the, For me, he was the guy from Boston Legal. Other people would say he's the guy from Will and Grace or he's the guy from this. And um, he really, and you could this came across on social media, he was someone, he reminded me a little bit of Jeffrey Gurian, actually. That's, and I never met Leslie Jordan, and I know Jeffrey Gurian very well. But he reminded me of someone that really seemed to bring happiness to people and someone that really seemed to enjoy making people's lives better. His lawyer said, and I think this is a fair characterization, beyond his talents, Leslie's gifts of bringing joy to those he touched, his ability to connect with people of all ages, his humility, kindness, and his sweetness will be sorely missed by all. And he wasn't sick. He was posting on social media as recently as Sunday. He was um, involved in a car accident on Monday morning in Hollywood and pronounced dead at the scene. And I just, 
I hate to hear that. He wrote a book uh, called My Trip Down the Pink Carpet, and he documented his move from Tennessee, which is where he was born, to Hollywood 40 years ago. He boarded a Greyhound bus for L.A. with $1,200 sewn into his underpants, and he never looked back. Found a lot of work on TV. He was on Designing Women. He was on a show called The Fall Guy. He originated the role of Earl Brother Boy Ingram in the award-winning play Sorted Lives, uh, which he also reprised in a film. And uh, he was uh, he was just someone that you could tell was a great guy. And then during the pandemic, when everyone's stuck home and everyone's they're not really producing new television programs or movies, his star was able to shine even brighter. His social media presence took off on Instagram. Here's this guy in his 60s, this kind of nebbishy, uh, somewhat effeminate, short comedian who's all of a sudden becoming a social media star. And it garnered him millions of followers, these fun little videos that he would do at the height of the pandemic. And it also became a place, the Instagram, where Leslie Jordan shared Thoughts about his struggles, reminiscences about stuff that he's done, memories, family stories, a whole lot about his mother, all through the prism of humor. And he was very open. Uh, And I know he's done not only on his own uh, Instagram page, but in interviews, very open about his past substance abuse and how he had been sober for more than 20 years. One quote. I think this was in an interview with Anderson Cooper. He said, people say, well, how do you get sober? What's the best way? Jordan said, well, yeah, well, 120 days in the jailhouse in Los Angeles, that will sober you up. And in one post, Jordan recalled a guard who took pity on how much Jordan disliked incarceration and informed him, the guard informed him, that they had Robert Downey Jr., who decades ago made headlines with a few brushes with the law, in custody and would be releasing Jordan and giving Downey Jr. his bed. So Jordan is telling the story, Pod A, cell 13, top bunk. I feel responsible for most of Robert Downey Jr.'s success. Honey, I gave him a bed. And his last posting on Instagram on Sunday was him singing a hymn with artist Danny Myrick. It just really makes you think. It really makes you think how it can all be over tomorrow. Car accident. Guy that brought so much joy to so many, wasn't sick, seemed very healthy, dead at the scene, car accident. Ugh. It just uh, breaks my heart. But um, condolences to uh, his friends, his family, and his fans. I was one of his fans. 800-848-9222. Someone who is seeing... Their reputation, I don't want to say destroyed, but diminished by, of all people, her relatives, is Sasheen Littlefeather, who we have talked about on this show. Sasheen Littlefeather, who, of course, was the person who um, rejected the Academy Award on behalf of Marlon Brando for The Godfather, which Matt Blaze has still not seen, but we're working on arranging a screening. She said that she was Apache 
and she spoke eloquently at the Academy Awards to a backdrop of booze. There was an apology to her this year before she passed away. And uh, presenters ridiculed her during the broadcasters. She told me that John Wayne had to be held back by six security guards to prevent him from rushing the stage. Um, so now her sisters are coming out and saying that she did not tell the truth. So um, according to her biological sisters, Rosalind Cruz and Trudy Orlandi, Little Feather is not American Indian at all. Quote, it's a lie. My father was who he was. His family came from Mexico, and my dad was born in Oxnard. Her other sister agreed. Quote, it is a fraud. It's disgusting to the heritage of the tribal people, and it's just insulting to my parents. Little Feather's sisters both said in separate interviews with the San Francisco Chronicle that they have no known American Indian ancestry. They identified as Spanish on their father's side and insisted their family had no claims to a tribal identity. I mean, you're not going to be a Mexican-American princess, Orlandi said of her sister's adoption of a fraudulent identity. You're going to be an American Indian princess. It was more prestigious to be an American Indian than it was to be Hispanic in her mind. So these sisters reached out to tell the San Francisco Chronicle their story because for some time the newspaper has been compiling a public list of what they call pretendians, non-native people who other American Indian people suspect manufactured their American Indian identities for personal gain. Um, I have no idea if this is true or not. I mean, I interviewed this woman once. I was a fan of hers. I liked her. I even purchased the uh, Playboy magazine that she was in in the 1970s. Very beautiful woman, uh, particularly with fewer clothes on. And she... I have no idea what her story was. She is someone that um, did not have an easy life. Her mother left her father when she was four and took her to live with her maternal grandparents. Her parents, um, you know, clearly she has a lot of issues with her sister. She was in foster care for a time. She described her father as abusive. She said her mother and two sisters were subjected constantly to their her, their father's rage and beatings. And an opinion. So I don't know what the situation is uh, with her lineage. When I interviewed her a few years ago, I asked her about this because there's always been a lot of controversy around her. People claiming she wasn't American Indian and this and that. So I asked her what the story is with her heritage. One of the many rumors that has come out about you over the years is the claim that you're not really American Indian. Now, that's not true, is it? No, it's not. Uh, among the other things that are not true, that I rented my uh, buckskin dress. Oh, boy. You know, I tell people I'm half Indian and half white. That means I'm half Indian and half savage. <laughs> so 
I asked her about it. She claimed to be American Indian. Her sisters claim that she's not. But you know what was interesting? Yesterday, six separate people sent me this article of from the San Francisco Chronicle of her not being American Indian. Six separate people. And all I could think is, I mean, I get that people sent it to me because I spoke about her recently. But what's it to you? What's it to you? I have never understood why siblings would publicly call out their their brother or sister. Never understood it. But especially once they're dead. At what point do you let sleeping dogs lie? Literally and figuratively. I just, I don't know. I don't know why these sisters felt the need to 50 years after she became famous for being a, a prominent American Indian spokesperson, why they felt the need to sort of, in their view, set the record straight. I take such issue with that. When people find, find wait until you're dead and can't speak out, and that's when they say, oh, you know, you know, Larry King, well, he made a pass at me. Or, you know, so-and-so, oh, he wasn't such a good guy. Oh, well, okay, let's ask so-and-so. Oh, wait, he's dead or she's dead. I hate that. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, it's 800-848-9222. The last death in the news is um, so another one that has gotten a lot of attention. Father Louis Giganti, who once headed up the Southeast Bronx Community Organization and served as a city councilman in the 1970s, very interesting. As far as I know, he was one of the last Catholic priests, might have even been the last. I think he was the last Catholic priest to hold elective office. He was simultaneously a Catholic priest, the head of a community organization, and a an elected official in the Bronx. Loved in, in the Bronx, in certain neighborhoods in the Bronx, especially by Italians in the Bronx. And it was after this, after him... Because he was so high profile, it was after him that the Catholic Church, if memory serves correctly, prohibited priests from running for office. Other denominations will allow their clergymen to run for office. The Catholics do not allow it anymore. So he died last week, uh, and he was described all the way back in 1975 by the New York Post as a priest who plays power politics instead of bingo. Here's the most interesting thing about Father Louis Giganti, though. His brother, now he was born the youngest of five boys to Italian immigrant parents, grew up with his family in the in Greenwich Village. His brother is Vincent Chin Giganti. Vincent Chin Giganti, the boss of the Genovese crime family, the guy they call the the odd father who would run around Greenwich Village dressed in a bathrobe pretending to be uh, insane so that he could avoid prison. That was his brother. And I'm always so fascinated by sibling relationships where one brother goes in one direction. Like the, the Bulgers are the best example. Whitey Bulger becomes a prominent gangster and his brother become Williams, Billy Bulger becomes a prominent politician. Same situation here. Um, Vincent Chin Giganti became one of the most powerful gangsters in America, and his brother 
is a prominent priest and politician. Now, a lot of people believe that Father Giganti was also kind of corrupt, that um, one is he was very vocal in his defense of his brother, never, ever would do what uh, Sachin Littlefeather's sisters are doing and call his brother a liar, um, even in, even posthumously. But um, there was also a lot of allegations that there was some shady things happening with that community organization that he ran. And then in more recent years, there were some allegations of, um, you know, inappropriate touching of children. I have no idea if any of that is true, but he, this was a guy that was very high profile, very controversial, even in his life. And I've tried many times over the years to interview Father Louis Giganti. Never was able to interview him. He just—he was 90 years old, so he was on in years, and maybe he didn't want to deal with me at 3 o'clock in the morning. But someone who did interview him, or they at least had a meeting, it wasn't a formal interview, was Larry McShane. Larry McShane is a terrific reporter. Uh, he writes for the uh, Daily News, and he wrote a wonderful book called Chin, The Life and Crimes of Mafia Boss Vincent Giganti. And... When he was writing this book, he asked Father Giganti to meet with him, and he did. And so I asked Larry, when I had him on the Racket Report podcast recently, what was the story between these two brothers, between Vincent Chin Giganti and Father Louis Giganti? This is what Larry said. They were very close, and uh, I mean, Father Giganti was... I mean, particularly the trial. I remember the the, the ninety seven trial where where Chin was convicted of racketeering. You know, it was not unusual to see Father Giganti, you know, wheeling his brother into the courthouse, and uh, you would see him outside the courtroom in the hallways all the time. Uh, so yeah, they they were very close. Um, Father Giganti was was uh, the youngest of the brothers, so might have been a little big brother, little brother thing, maybe. Isn't that interesting that he never, even though as a politician and a priest, it would have been easy for him to renounce his brother, never wrote him off, never wrote him off. He was the youngest of five boys to immigrant parents. All of his older brothers went on to become mobsters. Obviously, Vinny, the most powerful, the most well-known, but they all became brothers except him. Excuse me. They all became gangsters except him. He became a priest. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 Minute in a, in a couple of minutes. Then we're going to talk with Jen Kearns. Meantime, Obi Murray is uh, calling in again. Obi, you know, again, there's the phrase, call in any time. Usually, I mean, it's kind of an expression. You don't necessarily mean that literally, but uh, I'm happy to talk to you, certainly. Hello. You didn't mean it literally? I'm sorry to bother you then. No, no, but, no uh, bother. No bother. I mean, uh, it's just I, I appreciate your enthusiasm for... You know, for calling, I haven't seen such enthusiasm since uh, since John in Brooklyn or Gary in Staten Island. There you go. There you go. Um, I actually put it on Facebook on on the page as well. But you know, the, the extra items you have. Yeah, yeah. This uh, those... sixth cheese board. Yes. Yeah, you you get them every now and then. Bring them to the the, the studio. Put them on Facebook. Put them up for a month. Bring a few in every now and then. Auction them off. For your charity. Well, that's a good idea. You know what it is? And it's funny. Um, it's funny that you say that because uh, a fellow that listens to this show, Hank, in New Jersey, 
I was talking about the surplus of cigar boxes that I have, and I was trying to figure out what to do with them. And Rachel uh, throws them away, and I have to fish them out of the garbage and hide them. But um, she, uh, so Hank said, well, give them to me. I'll put them on eBay, and we'll, we, we'll auction the money off a of charity. And you know, it, it becomes a little bit of a chore to, to ship all these things. And that's kind of been what has prevented me from, from doing that. I, I, like the, I like the idea uh, of that, though. It certainly uh, it beats having them take up space in, uh, in my house. Um, are, now, are you, uh, remind me, what is your baseball allegiance? I know you are, um, you, you, uh, you rooted for the Mets in 1986, but uh, are you a Met fan? I, I, I went, as a kid, I went to Mets games. Uh, my dad was a Red Sox. I'm losing you there, Obi. I uh, well, if you well, if you want to make a deal under the table, I'll give you this cheese board. I'm losing you, but I'm sure you'll call again within the next few minutes. So uh, be happy to have you now. Um, Jen Kearns is going to join me in the next uh, couple of minutes, but before we get to her and a discussion of her new book, we're going to try and give away one thousand dollars if you can answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. You can. Be the proud recipient of $1,000. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you're the seventh caller right now, uh, you'll get to play the $1,000 Minute. See how you do. Questions are, uh, I think, appropriate. Not quite as easy as they were yesterday, but almost. Almost. So if you think you have what it takes, go ahead and call now, and then we'll, uh, we'll try and see if you do have what it takes. And then we'll talk with Jen Kearns about her new book. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Billie Eilish, Bury a Friend, very apropos, uh, talking about all these uh, dead people. Someone who is alive and well when last seen is uh, Jen Kearns, and we're going to talk with her about uh, the upcoming elections and her new book and a bunch of things in just a moment. But first, we're going to see if we can't give away some money and make someone a thousandaire, because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Bob in Connecticut. Hello, Bob. Hello. Bob, you know the rules of this game? Yep. Great. Let's get started if you're ready. What country is Mexico City in? Mexico. What band included John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and George Harrison? Beatles. What gas makes your voice sound higher when inhaled? Uh, Laughing gas? No. uh, Think. A uh, a gas that you inhale makes your voice sound higher. I have no idea. 
Uh, all right. Well, that's that's disappointing, Bob. It's helium. It's helium. You never did that as a kid. You 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 pop open a balloon, and then we don't have our harmonizer, so I can't do my helium voice. But your voice would sound like this. Well, we're, Bob, we're going to give you a consolation prize anyway. Um, we are one of the consolation prizes is not going to be. Jen Kern's new book. You're going to have to buy that on your own. If you don't know about Jen Kern's, you just don't know. Uh, she is a Republican strategist, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, uh, the author of the new book, The Real War on Women, a longtime friend of mine, and someone that's very bright, who uh, has insight beyond the usual punditry. Jen, it's great to talk with you. Congratulations on the new book. Hey, thank you so much. I always say, my brother, mind you, would always say, I did too much helium as a kid, and this is why my voice is the way it is today. (laughs) Yeah, I was disappointed with that. I didn't think helium was a difficult question. Uh, I feel like that was very in the wheelhouse of something that I think most people know. He he clearly had a different childhood than we did. Clearly, clearly <laughs> indeed. Hey, I want to pick your brain. Uh, I want to talk with you, uh, obviously, about your new book. But let me pick your brain on a couple of items in the news. Uh, one involves Kanye West, the uh, billionaire rapper, the former husband of Kim Kardashian. Uh, he has all sorts of companies, former independent candidate for president. Now it's looking like he finally might be too toxic for some people to do business with. He is someone who has a long history of making controversial comments, said George Bush doesn't care about black people at a telethon, uh, obviously doing controversial things like uh, interrupting Taylor Swift at that uh, award ceremony. And now, uh, after making some comments on social media in which he said he was something, in words or substance, going to uh, DEFCON 5 with the Jews, um Anna Wintour doesn't want to work with him. CAA, his agency, they won't represent him. MRC has shelved a documentary about him. A lot of other companies are severing ties with him. And he's being essentially banished from corporate America. And a level of banishment that we have not seen in quite some time outside of the Me Too era. You are an expert in branding, in marketing comebacks, in crisis communications. Do you think Kanye is able to come back from all this? Or uh, or is Kanye, or just Ye, as they call him now, is this it for him? Well, first of all, uh, I think, Frank, anyone who goes to that level to say they're going to go, you know, I think he said DEFCON 3. Right. Actually. And actually said, he said DEFCON. It wasn't even a 5. Yeah, he said <laughs> DEFCON 3, not DEFCON. DEFCON. That, that's the actual quote. DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. But but look, he, I think that Kanye's very misunderstood, and I'm not apologizing for him. I'm not being, you know, a, 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 an excuser for, for these comments. But remember a couple of years ago, Donald Trump said that he was so popular he could – walk out onto Fifth Avenue and literally shoot people, and he would still have the approval rating he did. I think that's what Kanye was trying to suggest here. This sort of like, um, I think Kanye does like Trump does, right? He talks out loud to work out ideas. Again, not apologizing for him, but I think what Kanye meant to say, and again, not apologizing for him, but I think what Kanye meant to say is that he could go uh, you know, DEFCON 3 and still 
not be canceled by Adidas. And I think it was more about his his actual legal agreement with Adidas that he said it was so airtight that, you know, he didn't need Chris Kardashian to manage him. He didn't need, you know, these guys at CAA to manage him. That he could literally, you know, as Trump said, walk out on the Fifth Avenue and shoot people and it wouldn't be cancelable. I, I think that's what his original intent was. Now, he let this hang out there. I, I think that it's probably... Uh, too late for him to come back from this unless there is a really good reason, unless he comes back and says something mm. like I just said. And if I were advising him on public relations, uh, that's what I would have him do uh, in addition to going and, you know, volunteering somewhere at a, you know, a Jewish community center. I think that's the only way that he could come back from that is to show he was just sort of talking in the ether about, you know, cancel culture and, and contracts and things like that. But look, I think Kanye, again, not to excuse him, I think he's be become very frustrated over the years because there is a group of people out in L.A., management uh, types of people who have been his handlers and Kim Kardashian's handlers and Kris Jenner's handlers. Some of those guys I know because remember I worked West Coast for, mm -hmm. you know, 15 plus years. There are people around the Jenners and Kardashians telling them, you know, what they can say, what they can think. And I think Kanye has just been so frustrated with that. And I think he paints it with the broad brush that these are, you know, because they happen to be Jewish, that that is the whole culture. Um, but, but look, um, he certainly, certainly went, boy, I think too far to, to do what he ultimately wants to do, which is to be on the ballot and run for president in 2024. Uh, Chung, with Jen Kearns, uh, you can uh, learn about her and even listen to her radio show uh, by going to uh, All American Jen on Twitter or just going to uh, – Jen, what is your the, the website for your show and for uh, people that want to follow you? Sure. Um, Allamericanradio.com. And then um, as we're going to talk about the book, they can go to therealwaronwomen.com. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Allamericanradio.com. Let me ask you about the upcoming uh, midterm elections. The conventional wisdom had it that uh, the Republicans were going to win big because the party that's out of power always picks up a lot of seats. Then the abortion decision came and all of a sudden it looked like, all right, maybe the Republicans are not going to win so big. Now it's looking like now that some of the, the sting has come out of that abortion decision since it came you know, six months ago, and people are still having to worry about gas prices and the economy and inflation. An ABC News Ipsos poll is showing that Americans trust that Republicans would do a better job on a whole bunch of these issues across the board. Uh, Double-digit edges on inflation, the economy, gas prices, and crime. Given that that seems to be the current mood of the electorate, are you predicting a huge red wave this year, or is there something that you're seeing that maybe some of the analysts aren't seeing? No, I, I think that the red wave is probably more possible now more than ever, and I think it has to do with, you know, multitude of issues, um, mostly economic, but also um, having to do with crime. And, uh, frankly, I think that the Democrats have really overshot what was going to be their, their magical campaign plan, which was to fight back and to turn out the women's vote for um, some sort of abortion solution nationally, uh, some sort of um, reaction to the Roe versus Wade overturning. 
Um, I think that they peaked too soon with that, and I think they relied too much on a singular issue, and, and that's what I find so interesting. And I'm so pleased to see it that, you know, women voters, there was a poll that came out just a few days ago that said, no, actually women voters believe in uh, talking and discussing more things other than abortion. We're, we're multifaceted uh, voters. We want to vote on a range of issues from jobs to the economy to inflation to uh, the handling of crime and so on and so forth. The things we see play out every day in New York City, right? Uh, those are the things that women care about. And I'm so glad to see that we're having a more robust conversation than the ones that Democrats wanted women to have um, in the midterm election. If you you've advised a lot of candidates over the years, if you were advising a Republican running for Congress, U.S. Senate or even governor in the midterms this year, early voting's begun in a lot of states. It's going to begin in uh, New York in four days. What would you be advising Republican candidates to do, either substantively or stylistically? What would you be suggesting? Well, you know, to keep talking about the economy, you know, James Carville said this famous quote in 1992 uh, during the Bill Clinton presidential race. He said, you know, uh, it's the economy, stupid. And um, that was something that he he just relented um, and told the campaign team. Uh, that that's what you have to focus on. And that is true this year in the midterm elections. This is, other than crime, it's the number one issue that uh, people are talking about. And it is something that, that polls quite well. In fact, there's there's that poll in the last few days I was mentioning shows that women voters in particular are, uh, the word was flocking to the GOP. And the main reason was they are unhappy with the economy and inflation and the impact it's having on their families. And and so if I'm a, a GOP voter, that's what I'm talking about, because that is uh, something that's that's not sensitive, especially if you're a white male Republican running, um, you know, uh, really to connect with people on those other issues. And especially in swing districts in, in the state of California and other places um, where I've worked, you know, you really want to keep the issues uh, to, you know, the six or seven issues that Joe Biden really does not pull well on. And that's everything from the economy to crime, uh, to the Green New Deal, to the student loan debt forgiveness. Um, all of these things we're seeing in the polls are really spiking uh, against uh, Joe Biden and against the Democrats right now. Um, now, one of the things that uh, my friend David Patterson used to do when he was ha- hosting his own radio show is once in a while he would turn the tables on everybody. Uh, even though he was a Democrat, he would give advice to the other party. Now, let me ask you to do the same thing. If you were advising the Democrats running this year in a lot of uh, purple districts, what would you suggest they do, either stylistically or substantively? Well, they're running out of time to really adjust course. Um, if you look at the early voting, which, by the way, Democrats have pushed for, uh, they're, they're sort of um, having this double-edged sword, right, because they've told people that um, they wanted you know, early voting in Pennsylvania. Voting in Pennsylvania has been underway for, I think, about three weeks now. Uh, voting in California started earlier this week. Um, so they're sort of running out of time to to turn this narrative around, uh, right? And that is to what I would tell a Democrat, stop talking about abortion. Uh, the liberal states are going to do what the liberal states want to do with that. 
and the conservative states, places like Texas, are going to keep uh, doing what they're going to do to protect unborn children. So that you're not going to really make that much of a difference. The things that they could be talking about is going back to their base, going back to helping the middle class, helping the working class. Those are the things that that they should be focusing on. Uh, The strategic error right now that I think people like John Fetterman are making in Pennsylvania, he's trying to argue against this, this case that crime is increased. And in fact, he's sort of going this other direction saying he's he's going to let a third of the prison population out. That's not what people want to be hearing about right now. Um, so, you know, to Democrats, I would say maybe use your inside voice these last three weeks, um, not suggesting that they shouldn't be who they are because they, of course, have to talk about their positions. But, um, you know, there's only really one state where you can get away with fully being yourself, and that is California. Kathy Hochul, right now can't even be herself because that race between she and Lee Zeldin is so close right now. But Gavin Newsom can continue to be who he's going to be. He can continue uh, to say, hey, we're going to be the number one abortion tourist destination. We're going to be, you know, getting rid of the gasoline vehicle in the next uh, seven years. You know, he can say these crazy things because they've had one party rule in California. But if you're running in a swing district uh, in, you know, Kansas or Pennsylvania, you can't. Or or in New York, there are 10 competitive congressional districts out of the 26 congressional seats in New York. Yeah. And, you know, that is a testament, you know, to to you guys, to the GOP for continuing to pound uh, Democrats in the state of New York, um, to people like, you know, Joe Borelli and you, uh, and everyone else on the airwaves talking about these issues that you've really made a difference. And well, you guys I never, also I, I think in, in the case of New York, I think it's largely a reflection of the the Court of Appeals throwing out these gerrymandered congressional districts, because if those original maps were in place, then I think you'd have maybe three or four competitive congressional districts. But if people are just tuning in or people just waking up, we're talking with Jennifer Kearns. She's the author of a new book called The Real War on Women. Time's up for radical feminism and the Democrats' liberal, progressive, socialist agenda. Now, Jen, I think uh, you leave very little doubt with that title as to where you stand on the issues. But we do have a lot of people that listen to this show that are maybe non-political, maybe they're centrist, maybe they're even left of center. Is there anything that a liberal woman might get out of your book? Oh, absolutely. Look, um, you know, first of all, I'm a registered independent that might surprise people. Uh, And and my role as a political strategist in the state of California for 19 years, can't believe I'm that old and have been doing this uh, for this long, but was really uh, my specialty and the things that people hired me for were to go win independent voters and to go win women voters and to go win those swing voters. And that is something I did. And and the way that I did that in California was not really to talk about party, even though I was the spokeswoman for the California Republican Party uh, for for a a little bit of a stretch, but really was for, you know, taxpayer groups and, and, you know, moderate candidates really was finding ways to really connect with people on the issues. And that was like, you know, taxes, the economy, inflation, crime. Uh, environmental issues, things like that. And and um, I had a winning streak of about 10 years in the state of California, which no other Republican ever had. And it always tickled me 
uh, that I was able to connect with people. Uh, but I did it by talking about the issues. And that's really what I set out to do in, in the book, The Real War on Women. Um, I looked back and I said, you know, there's this sort of urban legend that Republicans uh, you launched this war on women. Like, where did that come from? And I looked back and I said, wow, that phrase has actually been around for a really long time. It actually started in 1989. Uh, there was a, a radical feminist by the name of Andrea Dworkin, and uh, she was an author, and, and she she wrote in her book introduction that there was a quote-unquote war on women. And then it really began to be, you know, sort of picked up in the 1990s. You remember Susan Faludi, uh, the famous feminist. Um, she wrote in her 1991 book, Backlash, uh, that there was an undeclared war on women. Uh, it sort of, you know, got picked up at these DNC conventions and these Planned Parenthood conventions. And I said, gosh, I wonder if this is true, because if I'm a woman and I identify more with the Republican Party, Am I identifying with monsters and people who, you know, want to, you know, wish all this ill on women? Well, as I researched it, I found out that it was actually the polar opposite, that on at least 14 issues that I go in in the book, um, that it was really the Democrats who have been passing policies and executive orders that mostly hurt women. And it was everything from, um, you know, the lockdowns in, in March of 2020. Uh, that continued on, by the way, in some states until 2022, uh, which is hard to believe, but it's true. Uh, during the lockdowns, um, you know, more than 2 million women left the workforce. And I thought, well, gosh, isn't this kind of funny? It, every liberal mayor from New York City to L.A. Uh, participated and led the, the government lockdowns. Every uh, blue state Governor from Gretchen Whitmer to, um, you know, Andrew Cuomo to Gavin Newsom led the government lockdowns. And and I looked and I said, you know, uh, Democrats always say that they're a friend to the working woman. You know, they always wanted uh, equality in the workforce. Yet two million women left the workforce during the government lockdowns. Men didn't leave their jobs. Women did. And that's because, by and large, most of the schools were closed. So Democrats were making all of these a contagion of decisions that were negatively affecting women. And so I started to dig into that. Then I started to really look at, you know, 13 other areas where they really are passing policies that are draconian and that really limit women's choice, um, including the Green New Deal. Uh, there's no singular legislative policy that the Democrats have passed in the last 30 years that limits a woman's choice more than the Green New Deal. And that includes uh, you know, abortion. Um, the Green New Deal limits women's choices more than than any other policy issues that the Democrats have passed. And so I started to go, you know, kind of go through the list, uh, and and it was really striking. And so I thought, you know, this this is the real war on women. What Democrats are passing today, that's the real war on women that needs to be talked about. Well, so uh, you said a great deal there, and uh, hopefully you'll come back in studio soon, and we'll follow up on a a couple of those uh, different areas. One thing, uh, well, two things that strike me. Uh, one is I should point out that uh, Governor Ned Lamont who is a blue state governor, he was not big into the uh, the lockdowns and keeping everything closed. 
the way people like uh, Andrew Cuomo and uh, and Phil Murphy were. So we at least can't lump him in with the uh, the Gavin Newsom's yeah. of the world. We like Ned. <laughs> uh, the, well, at least in comparison to some of these those other folks. But you talk about the the Green New Deal as a strike against the Democrats, and you make it's a very interesting case about why that's a, a raw deal for women. Now, if I'm a Democratic establishment, you know, partisan or a Democratic establishment defender, I would say, well, look, the, the congressional Democrats led by Nancy Pelosi, they didn't pass the Green New Deal. Isn't that, just to play devil's advocate, isn't that not necessarily representative of where the Democratic Party is, but maybe just a fringe left-wing element of the Democratic Party? Well, you could say that, but look, the, the Democratic Party today is not really controlled by Nancy Pelosi. It's really controlled by the left flank of the party. And you might say, well, gosh, the Green New Deal, here's the big scam of it all. The Green New Deal has actually never been introduced on the floor of Congress, except for when AOC first took office. It was sort of introduced as sort of a a proclamation of sorts. And and then it was stuck in a desk drawer. True story, stuck in a desk drawer. Um, But If you look at Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, it included so many components of the Green New Deal. And and here's what I think most Americans have a problem with, and I think this will show up in the midterm election results, is that there is a lot of hypocrisy also with the Green New Deal. Um, I went through a list of of industries who are not walking the walk, um, and they're just talking the talk. Um, If you look at the... um, draconian uh, limits on things that are going to happen to the American people, thanks to the Green New Deal and Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, they really do want to phase out uh, the gas cars. And and that might be popular in New York City, where most of us don't drive. I know you drive, but I I don't drive when I'm here in the city. I haven't really driven that much in the last five years since I've been here. But, But people in the rest of the country, this does not resonate with them. And it wouldn't be so bad if if the Democrats were living their own lifestyle mm. in, in the way of the Green New Deal, but they're not. And I, I did some research, and Hollywood uh, is one of the biggest uh, polluters on the planet. And, and I looked it up, and with, with movie sets, uh, did you know just one large movie set can leave behind 225 tons of scrap metal. Uh, I am not surprised. Uh, Jen, we're going to have to end it there. There's a ton of stuff that I want to go over with you uh, the next time that you're on the show. And it's a fascinating book. If people are interested in it, it's called The Real War on Women. Uh, Folks can get it uh, on Amazon, right, Jen? Or where can they go directly to your website? Exclusively at therealwaronwomen.com. Oh, so it's not on Amazon. Okay. Not on Amazon. You know, I cancel culture proofed. The book from tip to toe, so I put it on my my site to start the real war on women dot com, and um, I hope everybody goes out and gets it and uh, let me know what you think. Absolutely, and we'll we'll get you in studio soon. We'll continue the discussion. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. We're going to do fifteen seconds of fame. Give you an opportunity to be heard on any subject for fifteen seconds. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and uh, for whatever reason, maybe I'm boring, uh, but uh, the call volume seems to be diminished slightly today. Uh, hopefully you could prove us wrong in the last two minutes of the program, uh, really the last 90 seconds, 800-848-9222, as we give you an opportunity to be heard for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Neil! Kathy Hochul is a coward, afraid to debate so everybody could hear her on the mainstream station because it'll just highlight her incompetence. Jimmy, oh, excuse me, E. Frank. Yes, Frank, uh, you stated on your show yesterday that you are in a bathrobe in your house between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Is there a proper way to wear clothing during off-peak hours in your place of domicile and where you live? Jimmy. Raphael Warnock running for senator in Georgia, hardline communist that's exposed in the book, Security Risk Senators, by Trevor Loudon. Got to see it. You should interview this guy, Trevor Loudon. I'm telling you, very, very serious situation here. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some information on demons. So you're not going to want to miss that as we go into Halloween. Frank Moreno, good day. Good day.